right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the No Laying Up podcast. I am Kevin Van Valkenburg, editorial director. If you are unaware of what's been going on the last couple of weeks, the boys are off filming Tourist Sauce, and so it is a parade of great journalists from around the country who are helping me play co-pilot. Uh, I wanted to make a joke about how I was Han Solo and my uh, my co-partner here was going to be my Chewbacca, but I think I'm going to flip that around. I'm kind of the Chewbacca and... Uh, and my friend Joel Beal is here tonight from Gauls Digest. He's going to be the Han Solo, uh, and, and I'll just sort of you know pilot the plane while he tells me where to go and, and looks uh, handsome and charming. Joel, how are you tonight? I'm doing good, buddy. Thanks for uh, having me on. I feel I feel bad that the boys miss us. They probably thought missing Bob Hope Week was going to be a <laughs> easy sailing, and said said they get this. But uh, yeah, no. well. Right. As someone who missed Tiger Woods' uh, Masters win in 2019, uh, I know that feeling well. Uh, so you know, you know, you know what? Screw them. They had their chance to uh, to be home. I'm sure they'll cry themselves to sleep playing some of the best golf courses in the world. This episode, of course, before we get into things, was brought to you by Titleist. Uh, Titleist uh, and its new T Series Iron models: the T100, the T150, the T200, and the T350. The T-Series irons are the result of an endless cycle of player input on every facet of iron performance, control, distance, flight, forgiveness, looks, sound, and feel. Every week on the PGA Tour, there are more Titleist irons in play than any other brand. By making the world's most discerning players an integral part of the R&D process, Titleist is able to make improvements that golfers value most. Uh, I value them because, frankly, I've been uh, I've been smoking some irons when I when I'm able to get out there. All the snow is like a foot deep around my house, Joel. Uh, the key to locking under that performance is getting fit, finding the right T-Series model that is blended and dialed to, to your game. Uh, work with the Titleist fitter can help you maximize your carry distance and create consistent distance gaps. Hone in your left-to-right misses and optimize your descent angle to the green so you can stop the ball closer to the hole and more consistently. T-Series irons are available now, so head over to Titleist.com and learn more. Find a fitter and a fitting event near you. Uh, boy, not much to talk about. As we said, uh, Nick Dunlap, the first amateur in since 1991 wins the pga tour event the american express joel i gotta say you know i'm i'm not someone who follows a ton of amateur golf but everybody i know has been talking about nick uh and saying you know what like this guy might be better than gordon Sargent. this guy might be the dude just has an absolute killer mentality uh when did nick dumblack come onto your radar honestly not really to the us am i'm somewhat with you like the am game don't get me wrong, I respect it. I like following it, but especially those who are hardcore AM guys, I feel like every year there's always like a new shiny toy, right? And this guy's always going to be the next best thing. And golf, probably more than any other sport, the parallel, or I should say the correlation between your performance at the amateur level to what's going to happen at the professional level, it's just, it's very tenuous, right? It's not like the NBA where you kind of know who's going to be good and who's not. So as one who covers the professional game, I always kind of just look at it as a fan without really buying into any of the hype. But you're right. There was something a little bit different with the the, the Dunlap uh, tenor and more importantly, the guys who sometimes the the OEM agents and scouts who kind of look, they they sometimes sell these guys pretty hard. Even that was really the first guy since Bryson I've heard that people really thought, man, this 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 cat's different. So 
I, I certainly didn't expect anything like that. But man, for, to guys who've watched this guy for a while, it wasn't necessarily a surprise. Yeah, I mean, I think even as the week was sort of unfolding, it sort of seemed like, oh, yeah, like this isn't really going to happen, is it? Uh, until, you know, Dunlap was the, you know, shot 64 in the first round, 65, and then 60 in the third round, uh, just really kind of blitzed the field on uh, the, or the easiest course in this rotation. And then it seemed like sort of things, you know, were going to be a little bit you know, testy, uh, particularly today. It was sort of go through a little bit of what happened. Uh, Dunlap kind of he, he birdied the six, but then he came out and hit what I would describe as a as a KVV tribute shank uh, on the seventh, like just hosel right into the pond there. Uh, he said he knew he'd sort of have some adversity throughout the day, but didn't quite expect it was going to be that. Uh, Joel, does that remind you? I mean, you're a much better golfer than I. I've seen you hit some pure irons in your day, but uh, does that remind you of any shots you've ever hit? You know, I played with Sean Martin a few times last week, and he had a couple of those, uh, a couple of those shots <laughs> here in Maui. So that was the first thing I. Sorry, Sean. I didn't mean to catch a. I didn't mean if you catch, catch a stray, but you know what? When we're talking about AMs, I think Sean deserves at least get mentioned in this podcast. Nobody's been more dialed into the AM game than Sean. Maybe my colleague Jordan Perez, but uh, sorry, Sean, you're going to catch a few. But yeah, that was that wasn't pretty. And I mean, just from afar, that certainly seemed to be the point where oh boy, this thing could really start going south. And then obviously to see him bounce. I mean, that, that's to me what said the most about this performance today is that. Forget even winning, just the fact that he was able to keep himself in it after that type of moment. Man, what a what a testament to that guy. Yeah, uh, bounce back birdie then on the eighth, uh, where he got up and down from front of the green. And, you know, the Amex has never been like my favorite of these like early season events. I don't think anybody would describe it uh, as anything other than an effing putting contest, as uh, Mr. John Ron. But it isn't quite that. I mean, you got to hit some some tough tee shots off of it. You got to sort of squeeze it into spots. Uh, and so you know he. He sort of uh, he had a few shots that I think were coming down the stretch that were pretty decent. Uh, you know, he he burns Sam Burns, who uh, seemed like the guy who was going to sort of challenge him much of the day. Uh, you know, he he makes a birdie on eleven, and goes goes up by one, uh, and then Burns makes another birdie on fourteen. And Dunlop kind of I think had a real moment in that moment where it was like, all right, he had about a ten footer there. He'd hit a wedge in there, and and it was like, all right, if you can roll this on top of burns it sort of means you are a an actual dog and boy he he pured that putt right in the middle that's when i was like okay burns could have had a two-shot lead there and said it was one and i was like all right dunlop comes right out on, on the next hole and hits a stick on 15 i was like dude this kid's got some some game without reading too much into it it almost looked like you could visibly see it the conviction building himself too though after mm -hmm. those moments right it was oh i'm i'm actually this good and i can contend and yeah, it's listen. I know Sam Burns. Sam Burns isn't necessarily like a marquee name to non-golf fans, but I mean the guy's a Ryder Cupper. He's been a, a top fifteen player for the past three years. Um, to, to do that facing a guy like that, man, it was uh, it, talk about proving yourself. It was just really cool to see. Yeah, things kind of sort of started to even tighten up even more. Dunlop uh, makes a birdie on sixteen to tie for the lead. Uh, Burns had a pretty sloppy shot into the par five there where, you know, if he, he just puts it anywhere around the green, he's probably able to sort of hold a one shot lead going into 17. But then on 17, that that's birdie on 16 was sort of huge because it gave Dunlap the tee and he gets the ball, you know, just kind of over onto the front edge of the green. It probably rolls out to about 20 feet from the hole. And what happens with Sam Burns? Just a really bad wipey eight iron that doesn't even hit the rocks. Frankly, it, you know, it plops into the water. Uh, not exactly like the kind of uh, thing that got him picked 
to to be a Ryder Cupper, uh, and particularly two. Then when he turns around on eighteen and just yanks the, his drive left into the water. Uh, you know, Joel, we're going to talk a lot about Dunlap, but I want to pause here for a sec. What what was going on with Sam Burns down the stretch? Yeah, it. So I know we like to extrapolate uh, in moments like this what it says about a guy, you know, where mm-hmm. he's going. Sometimes, man, it's just golf, right? Sometimes yep. some bad swings happen. Uh, I don't think this is a, any indictment on who Sam is and, and the player he is. It's just these things happen. It happened at a really inopportune time. But, I mean, it happens as Justin as a guy, the third guy in that group, right? A guy who was on top of the world not too long ago, his pen bent the bottom. These things just happen. So it's unfortunate that happened to Sam and obviously on 18, he didn't exactly, uh, didn't exactly make up for it, but yeah, it's, these things happen and I'm not worried about any type of collateral damage here with Burns going forward. So, uh, it seemed, you know, Burns was out of it. It looked like, uh, Dunlop was going to have a two shot lead on the, on the 18th tee, but then out of nowhere, kind of Christian Bezadenhuit, uh, who had made an Eagle on 15 makes a ridiculous birdie on 18. Really probably the hardest hole is playing all day. Dunlop, Kind of hit a not a great tee shot that he was sort of behind one of the the Pete Dye sort of you know chocolate drop mounds whatever, and he he thought he could just sort of fire it right and be able to get up and down with a two shot lead, but it was kind of when he got up to the green when he realized oh shit, like I have a one shot lead, had to hit what was a pretty nervy chip, uh, hits it it rolls out to about five I think the, the broadcast I said five feet nine inches, man that putt that he made was just pure right in the heart. I mean, that I was like, damn, that is some stones right there to literally be 20 years old, to have Justin Thomas sitting there in your group, looking on, you know, two-time major winner. So probably the person you looked up to, I would think, uh, being an Alabama sophomore and thinking about what success on tour would be like, and just pours that heart, that putt right in the heart, uh, you know, became the first USAM champ since Tiger Woods, uh, to, to win on the PGA tour reigning USAM champ. And then was the youngest PGA Tour winner, youngest since 1900, according to Justin Ray. Uh, he had that stat. I thought that was bonkers. Like anything you could do something that hasn't happened in like 124 years, that's insane. Yeah, it's like that uh, tweet a couple of years ago about Atani and Mike Trout that every every day they're doing something bananas that you know Haw- Hawkins back in the 1900s. It, uh, but yeah, I mean it was. Gosh, you know, for the most part, golf outside the major leagues. It's just sort of filler, right? I mean, the cell is something like this that people can change their lives with one week. And I I guess that's true. But let's be honest, that rarely happens. A lot of times it's just rich guys getting richer. Uh, it's pretty low on the on the meaning scale because the golf, you know, this week is going to look a lot like golf we see next week. That looked a lot like the week before. Um, that's that's fine. You know, golf can be entertaining. It's still fun to watch. And it does golf doesn't have to be super meaningful to at least it doesn't mean it's meaningless either. But Man, what, what what he did, what Dunlap did, it's it's why we watch sports, right? To see something we've never seen before, to have something. I mean, I, I was legitimately on my couch, just like standing on the edge or sitting on the edge of it. Um, that golf doesn't do that much for me, especially in non-major weeks, and especially not much the past two years. So to do it and to kind of do it how he did, like we mentioned, after that shank, see him fall off the saddle, to dust himself off and get back in, doing it against Burns and Thomas. I mean, that was. It was just so impressive, and it 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 was it was just exactly why we watch sports as moments like this. I it's I I just kind of almost don't want to like project what Dunlop is going to do, right? Because I I hate that where we can't even just like appreciate what's happening in the moment. I don't you know, look. You could sit here and be like, oh, is he going to win five majors? Is this going to be the next great player? Like, 
man, like, why don't we just let this sort of marinate for a few minutes, you know, a day or two and be like, this is awesome. This kid, I don't even, you know, I, I think there's probably, he's going to turn pro. Why wouldn't you at this point? You've, you, he is, has all these exemptions into the masters, into the U S open, into the open championship because of winning the USAM, but you know, winning this tournament will get him back into the masters anyway, if he were to give up that exemption. So I could see him saying like, you know what? I, you know, I missed out on what was a 1.3, $1.4 million that I could have won in this. I'm probably pretty ready uh, to at least be competitive in some of these things. Yes. Why not roll the dice and go, but you know what? I also kind of think like there is a chance that he might be like, Hey man, I could just kind of cash in on the NIL stuff for right now. Like what, uh, what Alabama boosters who are throwing around all kinds of money right now and are panicking about the current state of their athletic program uh, with football, why wouldn't they just like throw a bunch of money my way and I could just kind of yeah, win another NCAA championship or just hang around for a little bit more and, you know, at least play the Masters under my USAM exemption. I, anything's possible now with NIL stuff. Right. And I think you hit it, though, right? Like there is going to be a leap in the next couple of days of trying to project where this guy is going to go, what he can be given the given what he did. Given that you know his name now evokes Phil Mickelson, evokes Tiger, what he did at the USAM and US Junior, it we'll find out in, in due time. Let's just appreciate for what we had and, and let it soak in that. Let's not try to put all these expectations and wait on this kid. Just let him be a kid for a little bit longer. Um, again, maybe, maybe he plays next week or the next couple of weeks. That's fine. But just tonight, let's just kind of bask and honestly just be, figure out how lucky we are to watch what we just watched. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like we saw something history, something historic we hadn't seen for a long freaking time. I remember just barely when I think I was 13 or 14 when Mickelson won uh, the, you know, Bell's, what was it? The Phoenix Bell South. Uh, I can't even remember now. I have it somewhere in my notes. Uh, the North Northern Telecom Open uh, in 1991. And I remember my dad sort of pointing that out and what a kind of a fascinating thing was. And it it kind of tied me a little bit to Phil as a fan for a long time. And so it would be kind of cool if, you know, this if if Dunlop goes on to have a great career, uh, if this sort of you know tied some young new fans to him in a lot of ways, I was like, God, ah, that was awesome. Uh, I have a question for you, Joel. I wonder, you know, there's been a lot of angst over whether the current PGA Tour model is going to work, whether these you know regular events and then designated, elevated, whatever you want to call them, events. Uh, are we seeing any evidence? Is this like an example of like, hey, you know, like there are some grid stories that can emerge from these, you know, not exactly marquee events. There's been a two tier system for some time. It's just didn't have a formal name to it. Mm -hmm. And I think by kind of designating the signature events, some just the full field events, it actually has given the full field events a little bit more meaning. They can be a little bit more of a, a platform into the things that, you know, quote unquote matter. I mean, the hardest part really is just the sell of tournament directors and tournaments to the towns, right? Like someone like I, I'm in Connecticut, for years, there's always you can count on it around May of is this the year Tiger Woods comes to the Travelers Championship? <laughs> Everyone knows in the game it's never going to happen, and yet yeah. I was from like people in those publications, those stores would do really well. So yeah. I, I get it, you know, for those in reality though, I don't think it's much. But <laughs> is this the year Tiger Woods comes on the No Laying Up podcast again for the second time? Who knows? Stay tuned. Right, I'm not. I'm not trying to downplay the, that reality, but yeah, I, I think kind of letting the fans know hey we understand your time is finite if you really need to tune in here's where the best are going to assemble and these guys like you're, this is still a pretty good field this week um it had a, a lot of top 50 guys in it um the fact that you had 
Burns and Thomas mixed with a college college kid was just fantastic. I mean, this is this is actually kind of the best. And I think last year the Honda Classic was kind of what um, really crystallized it for me. Is it, it's fine to have these guys who you don't necessarily see week in week out be in the mix with maybe a name name or two, but even if those big names are not. That's fine. We'll see them down the road. So I, I know there's a lot of sponsorship worry uh, especially going forward uh, our sponsorships our sponsors going to sign on to events where they aren't going to have the guaranteed top 30 40 guys there but from a fan's perspective i think this has gone as well as the tour could have hoped if you're a golf junkie how could you not like really feel into this right you probably watched nick dunlop at the usam you might have even watched him at the walker cup uh you know i know we have a lot of great stuff that we're still working on uh, a film basically about this last year's Walker Cup of the old course. And so I'm really excited for people who, you know, might not have known Nick Dunlop. They're going to get a whole nother like window into him in the future when, when that film comes out, you know, it's just, I feel like if the most memorable PGA tour, I think loss for me in the last few years is when Sahith almost won in Phoenix and he was sort of crying in his father's arms and his shoulder and you know, his family was so – and I got a little bit of vibes of that today when, you know, his – Dunlop's parents were nice enough to kind of give an interview and, and they were super personable. And his mom was like, obviously, he didn't get his pressure – ability to handle pressure from me because I'm super nervous. Uh, she was like the MVP of the broadcast late. She was just a delight, you know, tearing up as she's talking about him and his dad saying, yeah, I, I mean, I guess the first time I thought, like, he might be pretty good is, like, when he shot 59 when he was 12. <laughs> I was like, oh. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Imagine if they replaced the sponsorship uh, interview with just parent cam. That would be such oh a hit. Oh, what it, a great it, idea. It never fails. Um, say, I would also throw the wives in there as well. And, and mm. yes, like there's there, there are moments of levity, but also it really kind of underscores the people you're rooting for that this is not mm. just a performer. There is a human being we're watching here and there's really big stakes or there can be really big stakes on the line. Yeah, I thought she was fantastic. I uh I love my mom to death, but I was like, I don't think my mom loves me as much as Nick Dunlop's mom. <laughs> well, it just, it's pure. I mean, I know sometimes people get a little bit, uh, I think, overdone on the whole purity of the amateur sort of stuff and the, the greatness of Bobby Jones. But seeing someone who, you know, is is really trying to, hard to fight back tears and is kind of just like, I had no idea that it would happen this fast uh, was really cool. And I've, you know, I've heard that Dunlop is is really like, like he's a ruthless competitor like he you know he wants to f people up uh on the golf course you know in match play and stuff and so hey maybe they don't maybe we got a future Ryder Cup here I'll, I'll let ourselves peek into the uh the future just a little bit I guarantee you Joel that there will be a lot of stories being like can Nick Dunlop become the first amateur to win the Masters since you know <laughs> whatever they'll be they'll be riding the Bobby Jones connection so hard until it breaks uh come it's Masters really just- time I know, and I, I'm already seeing on on Twitter, and it's like people forgot that Sam Bennett went into Sunday yes. in that and I'm <laughs> yes. and Rom. Uh, obviously, a little bit different situation, but uh, no, just man, this, this was just one of the as a uh, as a golf fan, this is is almost as good as you can get for a, for a non big week week. Yeah, well, it's just fun when you see some a potential. Like I, the, I remember watching baseball players when they would come up from the Orioles. And I was like, you know, I remember I wrote something once for the Baltimore Sun. It was like, hey, this is like cracking open a a good book that you know is going to be good. And you're like reading the first chapter and you're like, man, like I want to slow down almost and and savor this because 
Uh, I, I have so much good in front of me, but uh, it's just the beginning. I feel like that's what every time a young player get breaks through and and you know that feeling of like what it was like when Tiger won, you know, for the first time. It was just like, man, this is we have so much good in front of us, and I don't think that there's no chance that Nick Dunlop is going to be Tiger. But man, we could really have a lot of good in front of us, and that, that's that's going to be fun to watch. He he hits the shit out of the ball. He puts it great. He's obviously got a good short game. Uh, I'm excited to see what comes next. But there was other people in this tournament too. So uh, you have any follow up there, Joel? Yeah, I was going to say what a what a great uh, endorsement for the PGA Tour U rank. I know that was sort of a, a thing put together to maybe uh, stave off some of the live offers, but to have. Ludwig do what he did last year, and now this, it kind of shows you, hey, that, like there's some real talent down there, and we need to figure out a way to funnel this to the tour and not kind of get lost in the mini-tour purgatory that guys can get sometimes when making that transition. So hopefully this actually uh, really cements that program and helps facilitate more opportunities going forward. It just makes it clear that like there's so many good players who are good now and young, and, and some of that I think – you know, if I'm being totally honest, like some of that is probably the equipment, you know, you can hit the shit of the ball. And if you're young and you're fast and you have speed, it is such an advantage that that overcomes any disadvantage you have in terms of like wisdom uh, and sort of, you know, course savvy and knowledge. Like it doesn't overcome it entirely, but it, it just it makes up that deficit a lot. If, and it, look in all other sports like youth and speed and strength is what teams are coveting constantly. That's why running backs don't make it to 30 you know, which used to be like the time when you'd blossom as a PGA Tour player, it is super possible that golf is going to trend in that direction where it's like, yeah, man, like at 24, that might be the peak of your like athletic, you know, powers because you're swinging so freaking hard for so long. That might be where you just fit, match up the experience and, you know, and strength and ability. So who knows? Like it, there could be, I mean, I see people on Twitter talking to Eve this evening saying, oh, is an amateur going to win a major? Like, I don't know, maybe. I mean, Bennett proved that like it's in theory possible. It's still, he was a long way from actually getting it done. Like staring down John Rahm in the final round of the Masters is a lot different than staring down Sam Burns uh, at the Amex. But, you know, Justin Thomas, two-time major uh, winner there. Is a three-time major winner? Two-time major winner? I'm, why am yep. I confusing this? Two. Uh, you know, championship, but you know. Yeah. Oh, I'm the one who wrote him off and, and then he won a major and dunked on my head. So I ought to remember that. Maybe I blacked it out. Just a couple more rabbit questions. Uh, Steve Camino asked, "Does it is it just me or does Dunlop have Keegan's little long-lost son in him? <laughs> he does kind of look like Keegan, but the thing that kind of shook me on this question is that like Keegan's what, like 34, 35, maybe even 36 now. I mean, Dunlop's 20 years old. Like, Keegan still seems to me like one of the young ones. And it's just like, my God, like, time has gone by quick, Joel. What, what really – I had one of those moments in Maui a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we were, were playing Kapalua's, like, sister course. And uh, Kisner is in front of us. And, you know, he, he just got done calling, calling that – so it was Saturday, I think. Got done calling the round. And someone from those like, yeah, you know, like he's he's just kind of winding his career down at, you know, at his age, you're, you're, it's kind of over. I was like, yeah, that's that kind of sounds right. And I realized Kissner's my age and I feel like I still have my whole life ahead and career ahead. Yeah. And it really just it's, it's <laughs> one of those moments when you're like, oh, yeah, that guy's my age and people are writing him off. It, it really hits hard. What was that great tweet? I think uh, I don't remember who tweeted it, but Mina just retweeted it about Joe Flacco recently. It was like. Like announcer colon, there he is, the oldest player in the league. He can barely walk. It's a miracle. Thirty six years old. It's like me at thirty six. Oh fuck! Like my whole career is supposed to be ahead of me. Um, 
So there were other people playing in this tournament, uh, even though Dunlop will be the, the thing that anyone remembers. Uh, Justin Thomas, a pretty good showing uh, from him, kind of obviously last year was in the wilderness, um, you know, a controversial Ryder Cup pick to say the least. Uh, I don't know if it's a surprising, uh, you know, T3 from JT, but um, a lot of good golf out of it, especially the 61 shooting. I mean, I know that was also on the easy course, but... 61 shooting on Saturday, almost makes a hole-in-one on Saturday, probably as, as close as you can come to lipping out without the ball going in. A uh, little bit shaky, I would say, on Sunday, a couple um, water balls on par fives. But what do we like, Joel, out of what we saw from JT? Yeah, and, you know, I think just back up a little bit, JT did have a good end to 2023 i know it's just the end of the fall but even kind of going back to the late summer you could start to see it turn a little bit uh clearly the approach game is getting back into shape yeah you're right just the two really bad swings on his part on those par fives and take those away i mean he's probably in it right to the end right more importantly it's again not to project too much it, it does seem he's got that that fusion of giddiness and swagger back and you know to me when when things are going well for jt he has that like persona that's very arrogant and almost annoyed and, and I say that the best type of way, right? Like he's just, he's that old school shot maker who does not want to be friends with you. He, and he, he just relishes being that role. And you're right though, from probably Southern Southern Hills to that first round of the open last year, when he, when he shot 82, that, that swagger was just nowhere to be found. Like he clearly, not only was a game that was lost, like he knew it was lost and he had no idea where it was at, but, but really that Friday after the 82. And I think that 82 was, that was actually helped him find the bottom. Everything I've been kind of told. Like at this point, he goes, okay. And I give Bones a lot of credit and, and obviously JT a lot of credit too. I think there was a little come to Jesus of, all right, this is it. We're in the crevasse. It's time to start climbing out. And you really saw it in that Friday round at Liverpool. He he seemed confident about where he was going. And yeah, I know the the Ryder Cup was a little rough, although I think we can all kind of, there was a <laughs> circumstances there with the entire team that week. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if this translates to wins in the short, short term, but for a guy who looked lost, he certainly has that confidence back. And I think it is going to lead to him having performances like this week where he's at least in contention going forward. I think it's because he's already eating gluten again. I think, you know, as soon as he left the Ryder cup, he put a bunch of pictures of him eating pizza on Instagram, pasta, all that stuff. It's like, all right, you know what? Like, Hey, this might work for some of you. Yeah. You know, you, you health nuts, but this is just not me. Uh, and, uh, you know, hopefully dairy and gluten will bring JT back to uh, good things. Uh, Christian Bizadenhut, uh really kind of snuck up uh, here. I know we mentioned him a little bit in the beginning. I don't feel like I know a ton about Christian Bizadenhut. Uh, Do you know anything about Christian Bizadenhut? I mean, I feel a little bit ignorant uh, just in general about it. Obviously, like a good player. I've heard his name for a lot of times, hung around, uh, but not someone who I was like, oh, yeah, I'd pick him in a pick him thing to win on a PGA Tour event. Yeah, certainly a lot of game. The only real interactions I've had with him was, I guess it was the BM. It was Delaware. It was the when the Delaware meeting was going on. He wasn't invited <laughs> to it, so we were talking talk, talk a little bit. Uh, no, uh, a lot of game. I think unfortunately a lot of people just know him by that scary poisoning story he had uh, back mm -hmm. in the day. But um, yeah, he he's someone who's. Would you share that story if you can remember it? Because I, uh, you know, I think some people would be ignorant of it. Man, I, I'm I'm actually pulling up. It had something to do with like he had an accidental poisoning that then also I think led to like a suspension. That, I think that suspension okay. might have actually been separate. But yeah, like a very odd background and a guy who had to really kind of dig himself out of a reputational hit and 
But I mean, he's you watch him on the range, and I, I know he says about a lot of guys, but you you look at him and you go like, how's this guy not won twelve times? He, he's just that pure of a ball striker. Uh, short game's always a little bit hit and miss, but um, yeah, for someone who's young, a, a Presidents Cup year, I would not be surprised to see his name in the mix when we get closer to Montreal. That's right. He uh, so I'm reading this off of ESPN uh, several years ago. He talked to Bob Herrig about it. He when he was two years old, he ingested rat poison. Uh, accidentally, his, he had sort of like a bottle of soda uh, that his parents had. I think they were, you know, obviously using it to to sort of try to kill rats. Uh, and he ingested uh, a bunch of it and had to be taken to the hospital. Uh, and it it caused like stuttering for years uh, later. And so golf was kind of where he sort of sought his safe place. Uh, you know, he, as a kid who uh, had stuttering problems which sometimes I feel like I have almost when I can't get words out of my mouth on this podcast. But, uh, you know, he just he disappeared into golf, which was a sort of great way for him to kind of find out who he was. So, you know, pretty cool story. Like, I, I do remember that now that I uh, brought that up. Um, and, you know, it's, that eagle that he hit there was obviously like, it was all of a sudden like, oh, shit, like, this guy might, might you know, in the, the birdie on 18, I mean, I, look, I'm, I'm glad he got the first place check. That's great. We still get the great story out of it. You know, an amateur winning, he gets to, to cash in there. It feels like a fair trade. Um, feel pretty good about that. Yeah. I, I was thinking about this too. Would, uh, if you're, if you're Dunlap, would you rather, would you rather want the 1.5, but you were, you had to declare your professional early in the week, or would you rather not have the money, but now be known as the guy who as an amateur won? So I feel like to me, the amateur next to it is such a thing that you can't quant. I mean, it's easy for me to say, yeah, I'd rather take the, right. I said the money, but, to me, it just seems like that's something that could last forever. And, you know, money, if he's going to be as good as he might be, he's going to get it eventually. But I don't know. Is that kind of like an obtuse way to look at it? Or No, I think that's a perfect way to look at it. I think you to be able to be – if you think you're going to be a great golfer, which obviously you would think so if you're Nick Dunlap, you just did something that nobody's done in 100-plus years, you're, you're going to make money and a lot of it along the way, whether it's from endorsements or whether it's from prize money. That money's going to come back to you in a long way. And frankly, like over the course of his life – being the first amateur to win on tour in this long, just in alone in like speeches would probably come up. Hey, like I can I come speak, talk to your club, you know, for $25,000 or, you know, your, your leadership uh, conference that, you know, your, this business, I would love to tell you about how, how I approach this. I mean, that, that kind of stuff will end up in Dunlop's bank account. And I guess, I don't know, I don't know if sure if we even mentioned this, but like he could not have accepted the money. Like some people were asking me like, well, couldn't he just like say he's turning pro now or say he's turning pro in the 18th green? Like, no, the rules say specifically you have before you enter a tournament, you have to sort of declare professional or amateur. Uh, so there was there was no scenario where he was going to get that money. Uh, had to sort of you know basically I think it's a thousand dollars is the most that he can accept in prize uh, money. USGA, uh, yeah, that's yeah. there. So <laughs> so you know, <laughs> yeah, I know it seems like it's a bit of a bummer of a break, but I promise you that if Nick Dunlap turned pro tomorrow, and I don't know whether his like Adidas you know gear is like part of alabama's setup or if he has his own nil deal but if he wanted to sign a deal with someone else uh he could make that money back like almost immediately and i'm sure there are a lot of people joking that like he could pick up the phone and call live right now and live would probably say like hey how's 30 40 or you know 75 million dollars that uh you would like so uh that would be kind of a, a miserable outcome i think just for golf fans i mean live fans would argue differently but because you know, he got famous being a you know winning on the PGA Tour. It wasn't like uh, I would doubt there was an offer before this week about you know from Liv. It'd be like, hey, come on over and 
and do what we're doing. But you know, who knows? Uh, if if they're all coming back together, you know, who knows? Maybe Nick Dunlop could could wager on, hey, I'll take the 30, 40 million and the assumption that I'm going to be able to compete on the PJ Tour and in majors uh, going forward anyway. So, you know, I that's like the calculation that a lot of people have to make. It only took us 30 minutes to water down on this really beautiful moment of, well, you might just say, I know. I said I wasn't going to jump project forward. And of course, like I couldn't resist doing it, uh, which is like just part of the cancer of social media is that, you know, people can't resist uh, putting those thoughts in your head. Uh, as we sort of work our way down the leaderboard in honor of TC here, uh, Kevin Yu, uh, another player who uh, was not familiar with Joe Game, uh, he shot 63 on the final day uh, and came to the 18th hole. Tied for the lead, blew his driveway right and kind of ended up at a bunker. Couldn't get up to the green uh, and ended up, you know, missing a, a lengthy putt for a five. Uh, you know, Kevin seemed like a great ball striker and a pretty good driver of the ball. I think he, you know, hadn't missed a fairway all day until the 18th. Uh, you know, I I don't want to say like I was rooting against him, but I, I didn't really want him to like ruin a, a good story with Nick Dunlop. Uh, so, you know, hopefully like, Good things are ahead for him. Michael Kim, sometimes friend of the pod, finished T6. Uh, you know, first top 10 of the year for him. Saw he was like hitting up in and out burger or something on the way uh, out of town uh, on Twitter. Uh, and a couple more things. I wanted to get your thoughts, uh, Joel, on Daniel Berger. I uh, was back this week. First time in a couple uh, couple years, really, that Daniel sort of shown up on the scene because of his back injury. Um, Dylan DeShare, uh wrote a nice little sort of catch up with, with Sam kind of about how truly in hell he was uh just with a you know back pain uh what did it feel like to see daniel berger out there i mean i think he's ended up like t39th uh like 17 under um which is decent showing for first time black in a while for a guy it from all accounts wasn't even really to, able to practice much to get ready for this it's just the back is still in that, in that you know anyone who has back issues it's, it's a fickle thing right we we all know that but uh yeah, it just shows you how. I mean, this was a guy who was a top fifteen guy who who was part of that twenty twenty one Ryder Cup team, and it, it just shows you when you're kind of gone in the wilderness. Unless you're a top three or four guy, we tend to forget about you, right? And, and Berger was someone who was just extremely good. Um, yeah, it uh, definitely see, good to see him back. It was very impressive for his first start. Uh, obviously, the assimilation process is never easy back to tour life. Uh, hopefully he's just able to stay healthy. It sounded like just the quality of life was so bad there for a little bit. So hopefully he's able to kind of continue his career and still live in relatively uh, a pain-free existence. But uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, the swing looked still pretty damn good from what it used to be. Um, I, I know the stats do show a little bit there, but it didn't seem like there was a lot of rust. So I, for, if, if you're Berger, I think you got to take this week away just as a huge, not a positive getting through four rounds, but even just making the cut. Um, I think it has mm-hmm. to be a W. So yeah, hopefully this is a, a start of a nice little comeback. I thought one thing that kind of made me sad is he was basically said that like he couldn't even drive around in his boat. He couldn't even stand up. You know, that's how much his back hurt. Like if, you know, you can't yeah. take the boat life away from, uh, for Berger, that's that seems unnecessarily cruel by the gods. Any others kind of you know, Xander Shoffley is sneaky T3. It never felt like he was in it, uh, but did shoot a back nine 31 to sort of make it interesting. I mean, not this doesn't feel it's, it's been a while since Xander won, uh, so it would be nice to see him, I think, for his sake, get back into the W column. But you know, anything to sort of expect from him out of this year. Yeah, I mean, he he uh, had a pretty good week um, at the Century. I think maybe T10 finished, but like overall played pretty well. Yeah, for a guy who really came out on the business end of the Ryder Cup on on multiple ends, um, it's this is kind of a, a, a interesting year for him. I think he's 
he's 30. For a guy who had that nice little four-year span of it, it seemed like being in, in a lot of major championships, he obviously still hasn't made that breakthrough yet. And yet you look at him and you go, man, what's this guy has everything. There's no real weak points in his game. And yeah, oh, 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 again, I'm not trying to extrapolate success at the Amex to what could happen in the majors, but it, it, him being in the mix, I think he, I, I find him one of the more interesting guys on tour. So for him to kind of be relevant going into the play, just going into the, the West Coast swing, I think it will be really interesting. And uh, yeah, hopefully what we've seen is not an aberration. Two times last year that Scotty Scheffler finished uh, outside the top 20, the Open Championship. Uh, and then I believe the uh, the CJ Cup. Uh, Scotty finished twenty second, I believe, this week. Um, I don't I don't know that it really is like anything new to say about Shuffler's like putting. It's just kind of the same sort of thing over and over. Like it's the best ball striker in the world. You know, probably if you had anyone else, like if you could just putt average, he would be blowing away tournaments. But you know, it, he still has not figured that out. I, I, I didn't know what he ended up putting, but saw a stat, you know, he was again, like losing strokes on the green this week. I don't know. Anything think is worry about or care about or feel like a progress made with Scotty. I, I do actually think there's progress because from probably May until August, it seemed like Scheffler was really pushing back on, on the assertion that the short game was a mess. Mm-hmm. He kind of looked at it as just a, 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 you know, a little bit of a slump, but nothing was mechanically wrong. It seems like in the fall, he finally kind of came to the realization that, hey, all right, things are messed up. Let's break it down. I know it's going to be rough until we maybe get to where we want to go, but I'm at least willing to understand we need to work on this. Uh, For people around Scheffler, they they seem pretty hopeful about this. And yeah, you're right. With his ball striking, he's always going to be in it. Um, Yeah, to me, there's nothing too worried about here. If anything, I I do like the trajectory he's going as we get into February and March with, with his game. Um, and again, you look at the stats, they might not show it, but I, I do think he is getting better on that front. I know like it's, it's sort of the nature of having a weekly podcast and wanting to sort of talk about stuff, but it, it made me kind of a laugh a little bit last week when Rory, you know, he kind of punts away that tournament or whatever. And then there's like all this talk of like, Oh, is Rory messed up? And like, man, it's the beginning of the year. Like this is, we don't need to make like grand extrapolations on the best players in the world uh, based off of like one or two holes within a tournament. Uh, and so I, I refuse to sort of like, if Scotty sucks putting at the masters, then I might be like, man, what a, where are we going to go through another year of this? But you know, I just don't feel like the, uh, the American express makes a, a big difference or the century makes a big difference in the potential of what we're going to see this year. I know. And, Again, I, partly the blame's on us, right? Because we want certain events to be windows and that these people <laughs> soul to an extent, right? And sometimes it's just bad, a bad 18 holes or a bad couple holes. It doesn't speak to them as where they are or where they're going. Maybe it's just a bad two-hole window and they were two strokes worse than the guy they were playing against. And I, I'm with you, especially with – and we'll get to Rory in a second. But, yeah, Scheffler, I'm not trying to – downplay those worries but I, I do think he, he is at a better spot than what he was even at the Ryder Cup uh, I think that's when you really start him see him buy into yeah things aren't great rather than you guys don't know what you're talking about but it does seem to be a lot of work has been done on that on that uh on that on that part of his game and yeah there, there's if you're a Scheffler fan there's I, don't, I would not worry about any carryover about him having issues uh, on, on putting speaking of Rory 
Uh, Roy wins the Hero Dubai Desert Classic, uh, not to be confused with the Dubai Invitational last week. Uh, there's, you know, this is sort of the, of the two Dubai events, kind of the the bigger one. That's where they end up playing the, in the end of the DP World Championship every year. You know, Rory did not seem like midway through this tournament uh, he was going to have any shot at this. It seemed like it was not a particularly great showing. I think he he trailed Cam Young by 10 shots uh, in midway through Friday and came roaring back uh, the next day and uh, wins this. He ended up sort of walking down uh, not only Cam Young, but um, to, to sort of ahead of uh, Adrian Moronk, who continues to just put up results on the DP World Tour. I feel bad for Adrian because it's like, uh, <laughs> what does what Adrian have to do to get taken to the ball, frankly? <laughs> um, but... Uh, you know, not even like, a, I would say, an outstanding day by Rory on the last day. I think he shot 70 and didn't make a birdie on the back nine, uh, but, you know, made some birdies on the front, drove the 351-yard uh, second hole uh, to sort of get it, and then made it a couple ridiculous putts, made a really great birdie putt on eight uh, that, you know, Cam Young was just kind of slowly, slowly, slowly falling apart, made a double bogey uh, after driving it uh, into the woods on one of the holes and, and being up against a tree. Another great birdie on nine that gave him a three-shot lead at one point. Uh, he made bogeyed 13. He's kind of got a little bit of the left miss going on uh, right now. So when he's, he gets a little bit quick, kind of yanks across it uh, and goes left, but was able to kind of hit a, a really good shot on 16 when he did another sort of yank left. He found the green from like deep into the trees, two-putt par, and then made a pretty kind of um, uneventful two-putt par on on 18. Uh, Moronk had got it to to one after he made a birdie on 17, but just didn't, didn't have enough gas to catch Rory. Joel, what do we make of Rory's season so far? Yeah, it's, it's gotta be the highest compliment and both a source of vexation. If you're Rory, that he is so damn good and, and so consistent that you almost become numb to the excellence. And we, you know, we've talked about the majors before that, we, we tend to extrapolate so much from these 16 rounds a year that, and we downplay what happens the rest of the season, especially when the latter you would think is actually more indicative of a guy's performance in just four tournaments. It, basically, I, I just don't think people appreciate how good Rory has been the last four or five years. Um, as to what to make of the start, yeah, given the weight he shouldered the past two years, it would be easy to point to Dubai this weekend, last week, as maybe inflection point of sorts that what he's capable of now that he's decoupled himself from all the existential nonsense off the course that he's been dealing with. I, I think that's just way too early to make that parallel, especially, I mean, Rory's played Dubai extremely well throughout his career. This is not yeah. a, a one-off thing. That being said, it's certainly something to keep an eye on going forward. Now that all this attention is just on his golf game and yeah, yeah. best best start you could possibly hope for if you're Rory. In some ways, right. It's like the first time in a while that, there hasn't been any like, hey, are you going to be the next Tiger Woods? Like, you know, that's come and gone. Like, hey, are you going to save the PGA Tour? Like, hey, that's kind of come and gone. Like, hey, you know, are you going to win the Masters? Well, that's still there. And he's had, you know, six or seven cracks at it or however many at this point. But, you know, like, I mean, I guess it's 10. Uh, it's, it is really interesting to think about him just feeling, feeling a little bit free. And I do feel, I do think like, what if the first week in Dubai was kind of his floor right like what if it's like oh man like I, even when i play poorly in a shitty field like i'm gonna be right there at the end uh and you know i i think many i don't know if it's i want to predict like a monster season from him but he's just such a better player than almost anybody else in terms of like 
when he plays bad, it's it's never going to be a 77 uh, unless it's like a really bad, you know, crazy US Open setup or whatever. It's just he doesn't have those like ejection rounds in him anymore. He has like, hey, like I, I didn't play great today and I shot 71 and I'm still in it and I can, you know, probably shoot 67 tomorrow if I need to. And, you know, I think his his major season last year, throw the Masters out, uh, is was really freaking good in a lot of ways. And no one would really look at it that way. But it was like it was just a solid sort of thing. I we get sort of, you know, banged on for being you know too pro Rory here in this podcast. But like it just the facts are what they are. Is like he's he's really consistent and is really good. And all this talk of like, you know, oh Rory is the most hated man in golf now. I don't. That's such a ridiculous kind of thing. I think to say. Yeah, I uh, and a couple of things. Obviously, you guys are closer with Rory than than I am. But talking to somebody who is somewhat in the same position that Rory was the past couple of years. It, we cannot overstate the amount of time that is taken away dealing with what's going on right now in the game. Just the amount of calls that you're you're spending with other tour players, and that might not seem like a lot or these texts, but that those take away valuable hours. That especially if you have a family, you just don't have time to to, to delegate to. So this idea that I, I know it sounds like a, a Rory apologist creation that what could he be capable of now that he's freed of this obligation. I do think it's a it's a very real thing we'll be discussing going forward. But yeah, you're right. He also just seems more comfortable with who he is now. Uh, I, I don't think. I mean, he's a very likable guy who he is, but I also don't think he's worried about the politics of being liked as much anymore. Mm-hmm. Yep. And again, I, he's been around for a, uh, such a long time. We forget he's still a relatively young guy. Like he's basically the, at the age where Phil was when Phil started right. his major tear. So. You know, not to say that he would have the longevity that that Phil has enjoyed, but it's not like, hey, he only has a couple of years left. He still has a a long runway if he wants to to be great. And yeah, it's it, I, I hate to say because we always put so much pressure on Roy to see what he will do, but man, what this this start certainly hasn't downplayed expectations for what he could possibly do in twenty twenty four. Yep, the next five years could be really fun. I mean, it, they could be more sort of torturous for him, obviously winning regular tournaments is not uh not that important but it's like you want to win if you're going to tee it up but the next five years of like major that this is probably his chance to sort of make his legacy something beyond what it is now right like he's probably a top 25 golfer of all time i think that's probably fair to say it might be on the sort of fringe of that uh but i think that he he probably is that he's been number one for long long stretches uh, and has done it consistently for a long time. Has almost won majors, you know, a lot during the last ten years. Even though he hasn't broken through, if he were to sort of win a couple more, or, or you know, like you said, the the, the outlier end of it is like ha- have a Mickelson type career from now on, like win five more from here or six more from here. Don't think that's going to happen. Just like historically, like you know, Phil's one of the few guys to do that, go on that kind of run. But you know what? The possibility is still there. I think like he hasn't, especially the last few years. His fitness has been pretty good. He hasn't, you know, been missed much time with injury. So who knows? It's a fun, it's a fun kind of hypothetical, at least to start the season of like playing well. I, you know, you're right. He does always play well in Dubai. I think he likes looking at those buildings and the distance and picking out a, a window, uh, you know, far off there and just basically he used to live in Dubai too. So you know, yeah. maybe there's a little bit of home game model. Uh, shout out to my colleague Randy and the home game model in that sense. So uh what about cam young what what should we sort of i mean kind of a place the weekend in plus one you know look like he kind of had that tournament uh on his hands i, I haven't spent a ton of time really talking to cam young i, I kind of say that i know him really well i feel like i should 
try to remedy that this year a little bit. Uh, I feel like again, we get a little bit sort of, you know, beat on guys when they, oh, you still haven't won. Does that mean it said something about your character? Like Cam Young's really freaking good. Uh, you know, he's obviously done really well in match play stuff. He's, you know, he's just a a very very talented player. Uh, you know, is there anything you think, Joel? That I mean, is what is holding Cam back from being like a three four time winner on the PG Tour? Because in my mind, he almost already is. Yeah, I don't think anything really is right. Like you look at Scheffler's first couple of years, right? That was a knock on him of why can't this guy win? He's getting in a lot of tournaments and he's not, not finishing it through, obviously not quite as long of a, of a stretch that Cam's had, but this is also only his third year. He hasn't started his really his third year yet on the PGA tour. Um, listen, I feel like Tony Finau has been the proof of concept that maybe wins don't necessarily show if you're a great, a good player or not. Um, I, I, I'm there's nothing to personally I, I don't think there's anything to worry about right now I, I, a, a win at Dubai would not have changed what I think about Cam Young as who he is or what he could be maybe we could start having that talk a year now or he starts having more close calls where he falls down the stretch I just think he's still way too young to, to start making any type of indictments on him yep uh, I noticed that uh, you know obviously we talked a little bit about Moronk I don't really have a lot to say about Adrian Moronk other than like it it must be hard to continue to be really like play really well and also have seen the European Ryder Cup team like go and kick ass and you don't really have any like justification of being like, well, you should have taken me. Like, no, they kind of figured that out. Like they were, you know, yeah, yeah, the only and that grant this could all change by next week. But you know, mo- I think out of moral entanglements aside, Baronk would have had probably more justification for jumping to live than almost any yeah. other guy of like, well, listen, I'm just clearly on the out crowd. The fact that he yeah. still is betting on himself, uh, not only of where he's at, but where he thinks he can still go. I I, I mean, credit to him. I, it's, yeah. I think that he keeps getting these rough goes, but I, I mean, gosh, his game, it's still very raw, which is really impressive. Yeah. Too. You, can, you can see how great he is or good he is now, but there's still, you can tell potential would be a, a lot better. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, if anything, if you're an American fan like Jesel Pizza, this guy keeps getting better. Like, what's 2025 going to look like? But uh, yeah, got to got to feel for him. But I think I would not be surprised. I can see Valhalla being a really interesting spot for yeah. him because you can spray the ball a little bit there and get away with it. It definitely rewards aggressive play, which is what he kind of excels in. Mm-hmm. That would be a, a spot where I feel like well, golf fans would really have to take note of, of Adrian Moronk if they're not already familiar with him. How about an Adrian Moronk Keegan Bradley singles match to decide the Ryder Cup at Beth Page? Like that, that would feel, you know, appropriate uh, to sort of ra- settling old accounts. Oh my gosh. A, a St. Johnny's guy uh, playing in, in Beth Page would be too much. <laughs> I feel like I've said this probably a dozen times on this podcast and I'm, I'm going to say it again. Like I'm very concerned that they're going to want to like, there's going to be all this like we should cancel the Ryder Cup talk. It's gotten out of hand uh, after the behavior at Beth Page because I think it's going to get really bonkers, like really loud and really not e- and not even like a oh loud kind of fun kind of way, but like I'm worried that we're not the American fans are not going to behave themselves uh, and that they're going to be like, well, it sucks to play in Europe, so you just got to take it. Like they get heckled here, but man, it's it's truly I, I remember the the. Uh, Beth Page PGA when Brooks was there. Oh my God. People's just screaming, you know, obscenities and like getting dragged out by security. And I was like, wow, this is uh, the potential for this to get ugly is very, is right on the surface. And when uh, when, when Brooks 
I think it was 14. Yeah, it was part three when he hit it over and people start yelling. Mm-hmm. There's chanting DJ. That was yeah. like literally my first thought of, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. we're at that point five years out from sure. <laughs> Ryder Cup here. This is this is going to be too much. Uh, I and mean, we'll get to a little bit Ryder Cup in a, in a little bit. But uh, I, my, my main worry is Saturday just because the Ryder Cup is the one event that it's really not a golf crowd. It's a sport sporting crowd for yep. – a lot of, that's one of the reasons why I think we love so many people love the Ryder Cup. In this point, it does give me a little worry. Um, I it'll be interesting to see the campaign that goes on the next year and a half to get closer. Of like, it was what was it? I think it was the 2009 U.S. Open when yeah, because it was at Beth Page. There was like that "Be Nice to Sergio." Be nice to Sergio. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I feel like we're we're due for one of those um, because it's it could get it could get real bad, <laughs> get real bad yeah. there weekend well and some people think like oh what do you you know why are you saying this like it's, you're so soft like you know it's it's not that it's literally like this screaming obscenities and like you know taunting people's wives and you know, with golf you're just so literally like you're standing on top of the players all the time it's not like basketball or football or baseball where there's like real barriers between you like the ropes are just sort of like a polite suggestion yeah and the players hear literally everything you hear and i think with what happened with Cantley at the you know Ryder Cup with the hat stuff, I'm sure a lot of American fans are like, all right, it's our turn to kind of give them a taste of what we experienced. I, mean, I remember Justin Rose saying to me at the Hazeltine Ryder Cup, I pulled him aside after they got he and uh Stenson got heckled pretty hard during a, a match with uh Spieth and Reed, and Rose saying, like, they're gonna have to like get this under control. Like this, they're gonna lose control of the event. Like this is not uh, you know, reasonable going forward. And Justin Rose is a pretty reasonable guy. Like you can get a little bit whiny, but you know, I think pretty, you know, even keel, not exactly like, it's not, it's not like he's not a tough person who hasn't dealt with like unruly crowds before. So yeah, that lots was, to look forward to. That was that after Danny Wilt's brother wrote that kind of hilarious yes. note that no one took. <laughs> in, in the, uh, uh, no, I'm unfair that satire didn't translate for Danny Rhodes' brother. Yeah. And, and listen, now I, I live I live just outside New York City. I go to a lot of Knicks games. Like it's so much different when you have twenty thousand people yelling something and actually almost drowns it out. Versus, man, even if it's just one knucklehead yelling something, it just cuts through the air because everybody can hear it and it's just uncomfortable. I yeah, there's a way, and even the Cantley stuff. I mean, we were there. It. it it was so friendly. I don't, it wasn't malicious by any means. For sure. It was kind of good natured. And I think that's that's the tone I'm worried Beth Page will not have. It will not be, hey, this is all good natured. We're all just yep. watching golf. It will be, we. there will be xenophobic. Yeah. It's, yes. I'm, that I'm is the problem, is that flat out American fans are not funny and are not clever in groups like European fans are. It's just not part of our culture. It's like what soccer is that, you know, they're singing songs, they're making jokes. Like in America, it's more like "f you, buddy," and you know. So, yeah. uh, shout out to all my my people. <laughs> uh, speaking of things that are just clearly unfair, uh, Joaquin Neiman uh, said uh, he he was participating in this uh, event here in the in Dubai and said early in the week that it was unfair. It's pretty unfair right now what the world rankings shows. Uh, it says the top 100 players in the world right now, but I don't think it is the right ranking. That's why I'm going to Dubai uh, because of ranking points nothing else just to try to get into the masters. It's not me trying to take the place of other players because I'm there. It's because the system is not working well. I want to be at the majors and I think this is the easiest pass uh, path is to go play in Dubai. I don't know if it's going to create drama uh, or if they're not going to like me playing on that tour, uh, but I'm going to go there and try to play well and get my points and then get out of there. 
Uh, Neiman did play pretty well. Ended up, uh, I believe, uh, in a tie for fourth. Uh, Joel, what do we think about Joaquin Neiman saying, it's unfair that we're still not getting ranking points, and that's why I have to go back and play on the DP World Tour to get these points. Even though, as what he said here, uh, I think we have to find a way for us to get in. That's why I'm trying to play more tournaments than just live golf. Joel, I thought the point was to play less golf and be more time with your family. I, <laughs> I love that he essentially tries to take responsibility for his decision before then immediately putting the onus on the majors for not going along <laughs> with what they want it. I, I mean, he's certainly not the first person to, to make this song. It, it, I just have zero tolerance for guys not coming to terms with the consequences of their actions, right? Like, if you were naive enough to believe, Greg Norman, that points were eventually going to come, like, man, that's that's on you. And I, I hate the expression – hey, you can't have your cake and eat it too because, like, why the hell do I want cake if I can't eat it? But it blows my mind that so many of these guys made the Fostonian bargain yet are unwilling to kind of account for the cost of that deal. He is right. The majors are in business of doing what's best for them and that they haven't thus far. I mean, it could change, but, like, so far they haven't given Liv a funnel. I think that's a bigger indictment than any world ranking points. And... I don't know. Just when live when you, when you, if you're a live guy and you took the money at that point, it meant you were no longer a competitor. You were a barnstormer. Uh, I don't know. Frankly, Neiman should be lucky that even he even has this avenue from the DP World Tour to get himself in, rather than like blame the system that he's trying to tear down. So, yeah, I I don't know. He was Neiman was also the guy who kind of acted like all the players are going to hate us when we get to the Masters last year, and clearly that wasn't the case. So. I feel bad for him. I, you know, I, I do think he's a, a good guy, and I understand maybe feeling why he is, but I, he just needs somebody in his life to tell him this. This is how it is, man, and you gotta come to you gotta come to peace with it. Well, if it isn't the consequences of my own actions, like <laughs> yeah. you have a lot of money and you don't have to like grind to make that money, yeah. you like literally can just enjoy the money and how you play on the live tour is just a bonus. And so I kind of, you know, clearly your legacy or whatever you want to compete and win in majors, like. You know, there are other avenues into certainly like the U.S. Open and the Open Championship that you could pursue. And some live players have chosen to not do that. And some have. I I honestly do legitimately like admire the ones who just shut up and go and like go to try to qualify. Like, all right, you know what? I know I knew the deal. I got the money. Money's great. I don't have to like I don't have to play as many tournaments as I want. And I can just go. I, I think that that's what the calculation a lot of them could have should have done is saying like, you know what, this might mean I might not make it in the Masters, and I'm okay with that because fifty million dollars is going to be generational wealth for my family. The Masters, the legacy stuff, all that stuff doesn't really matter to me as much as fifty million dollars, and that's why everybody admires Harold uh, Harold Varner because he just straight up said that. It's like, yeah, I'm good, man. Like, I can't pass this up. Like, I'm you know, Masters is great and all, but I, I need to make this money for my family and. Peace out. Great, great perspective there from Harold. Uh, a How Tong Lee sighting in this tournament, uh, Joel. He, uh, I believe, he finished uh, tied for seventh. Uh, I would just like to read to you How uh, Tong Lee's uh, results from 2023 prior to this tournament. Miscut, 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 miscut with WD, WD, missed cut. <laughs> Uh, it has been, uh, deep into the wilderness for how Tong, uh, but I don't know, like a, a pretty decent showing here and a pretty decent tournament. Uh, you know, I, I think we all were kind of thinking like, oh man, like 
back when you know he was leading which i can't remember which us open it was uh when he was, you know, was pounding PGA, balls right? pga pounding balls into the you know into the darkness uh late that night and you're thinking like man this is finally going to be the you know the great player from china that we've been talking about for years that's going to break through and it's going to make the game explode in china and they're going to build thousands of courses in china and this is going to be you know the next what's happened in in south korea is going to happen with china and it just hasn't quite happened for how tong like he's been you know he's, he's currently ranked 476th uh on in owgr um but you know is this is a pretty good result uh maybe there's good things to come i i just hope he plays well enough to get back in the president's cup because if he produces any type of stories like he did in 2019 uh, <laughs> wrong actually i'm not kidding you i so i have a putting green in my basement and i have photos from dif- dif- different events kind of scattered below a photo of actually me and you we're at uh without giving you too much information uh you and i were sitting on the 72nd green of a u.s open uh and wills it was when wills out missed the putt uh to in the playoff uh one of our colleagues who had uh, bet a lot of money on Zal Torres is like <laughs> very, his hands buried in his face. Another one of our colleagues is trying to yell into a camera, but a camera is turned the other way. And me and you are just looking at each other like, what? <laughs> Below that photo is the Hang Tong photo of him at TPC Harding hitting balls into the darkness. So I'll, have to, I'll have to send it to you. <laughs> so, uh, that's all I really have to add about Hang Tong. I, I love. He's got a really when he's on, he's got a really fun game because he's a little bit sense of. I mean, this sounds blasphemy, you might say, Roy, but like he makes it look really easy when things are going well. And when he is the wedge game figured out, man, you just you just watch him. You go, how's this guy not like a top fifteen player? So, uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully he gets back on because he <laughs> legitimately is a character both on and off the course, and we're kind of short of that at the moment. So hopefully, uh, hopefully he he gets his game back on the steady. Yeah. I don't remember that President's Cup where, like, you know, they had all the strategy, like, worked out. They were telling the guys, like, hey, okay, off first tee, like, everyone needs to hit iron because you just don't want to, you know, you can't be in a spot where a driver's going to build ever. And he just, like, Leroy Jenkins it, like, on the first tee, like, just <laughs> boom, hitting driver and just completely getting ejected that whole day. Like, just completely ignored all the advice that uh, Els had sort of methodically like worked out to you know try to win that presence cup i think it's probably still on youtube there's a great video of that first <laughs> when he hits the driver where ernie yells almost like comes from the crowd it's like a red sea parting and else you could literally see him saying what the fuck oh it was so good it was one of those things where I hope ever because you know he's we don't get to see him much as American golf riders, but mm-hmm. that's definitely who he is. So to see everybody else see what we see was it was just perfect. <laughs> uh, well, Joel, you know what else is perfect is Roback. Uh, they got the best fit, the best feel. Uh, we're, we're fresh off of restocks and our new favorite polos and hoodies and Q zips. Uh, trust us when we say there isn't better gear. Uh, they're golfing around. I'm wearing a Roback hoodie right now. Uh, the fit, the feel, the quality, it's just all great. Uh, Robux also has some of their performance polos back in stock. The material, the moisture wicking has great stretch. Well, the collar is so crisp, it doesn't lose its shape. Uh, they fit way better than those old boxy polos, too. Uh, simply put, the best designs paired with the best polos. Uh, you know they have the best performance hoodies, too. Wearing one right now, as I said. Legit, the only hoodies we wear. Fabric is so soft, you can't take it off. Wife loves to sort of curl up next to me when I'm wearing one of these hoodies. Uh, we, we wear them in everyday in life. They're just and on the golf course that that good. Also, the performance Q zips are back. We love them. 
They have a great classic look with their soft performance fabric that makes them incredibly comfortable. They're the definition of versatile, and these Q-zips will have you feeling good and looking good. If you haven't already, it's time to load up on some Roback for both yourself and for others. Use the code NLU on Roback.com for a generous 20% off your first order through the end of this week. That's spelled R-O-H-B-A-C-K.com. That's 20% off all bottoms, Q-zips, hoodies, and more with the code NLU. Get ready for a golf season, Roback. Joel, I'm going to have to just send a big box of uh, Roback to your house as a thank you for doing this podcast. Uh, but let's turn it back now, our uh, eyes now to the LPGA with Grand Hilton's Vacations Tournament of Champions, Lydia Ko, uh, back in the winner's circle, wins by two. She becomes the seventh woman to reach 20 LPGA wins before the age of 27. This is the first time that Lydia wins has won a tournament uh, by herself since 2022. She was able to capture the Zurich with Jason Day a few a little bit ago. It was sort of that uh, was it Zurich? No, it was the uh, sorry Grand oh, Thornton. Grand Thornton. Thornton. Yes. Yep. The uh, uh, we need if it was a Zurich man, that would be a big story. Uh, but uh, uh, this gets Lydia. Uh, she finishes two shots ahead of Alexa Pano, uh, which uh, if you have little girls who like golf, you are well aware of since uh, her appearance way back uh, when in the short game. Uh, the Netflix documentary about uh, sort of youth golf. This gets Lydia uh, one step closer to being automatically entry in the Hall of Fame. She now has 26 points. 27 points gets you automatically in the Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, I, I watched a, a good chunk of this today as I was sort of getting ready for the Amex to come on. Uh, Lydia just, you know, roping like low bullet penetrating driver, uh, you know, taking the sort of wind out of it. Obviously, is a great wedge player. Seems to have like, figured out putting again you know joel what do we make of lydia ko's career at this point uh I, it's hard to believe that she is 27 years old and first yeah. became the number one player in 2015 man it's you know aside from the career let's like you know, just for today i mean let's try to think of a way to say this delicately you know i i don't think it's a secret that the team around lydia is very involved uh, certainly, there have been a number of ex-caddies and teachers who have expressed concern for that. Uh, from what I gathered, last season was really the first time in her life that she's had some sort of autonomy and really given the chance to, I mean, unplug's not the right word. I, I think I think she just realized there's more to life than golf, right? And, and maybe that was a detriment to her game, but I think ultimately that was healthy for who she is as a person. Um, now, judging this from a golf standpoint, there is worry that once you sort of leave, Especially once you've been, that's, that's the only thing you've known your entire life. Sometimes you wonder, are they going to come back? So I, I know this course is, I mean, it's friendly confines to her. But when you had the season that she had in 23, to you needed to start somewhere. So to, to see her do what she did this week at Lake Nona, I think it's a really great sign um, for what she could still do, not only this year, but in her career. Um, but yeah, as her career, I feel bad. I feel like she's not been given the proper due uh she was like so much noise was made when she came out and she was so good that her very goodness almost wasn't appreciated because we what we thought she was going to be it it was almost a little of a letdown so i I kind of now that she's had the year that she had and she's able to come back i think hopefully more people ever appreciate just the work that she's put together almost for a decade now. And yeah, I mean, she's still 27. There's still a lot of time left. Um, and this, this was a great first step to kind of maybe getting back to that person we saw even just a couple of years ago. Yes. When we talk about amateurs winning golf tournaments, professional golf tournaments, Lydia Coe is certainly someone who did that. Uh, you know, this is when we say that stuff about 
Nick Dunlop, of course, we are ignoring the fact that it happened in the women's game. Uh, you know, Lydia Ko was really almost won majors before she, uh, yeah. you know, turned professional when she was 15 and 16. Uh, I spent some time around Lydia. I wrote a, a feature about her, her ESPN, the magazine back when ESPN, the magazine existed. And it's, it's funny because part of what you said is exactly true. When I originally got assigned the piece, the hook of it, the editor wanted me to write about it was like, she's like potential to be the greatest golfer of all time. Like she's so, yeah. you know, uh, she's had this unbelievable career and she, she'd almost won a U.S. open, uh, you know, the year before it would have been her third major. She kind of, uh, kicked it away a little bit on the back nine that year. And oftentimes at ESPN, like we would write pieces and they would hold for a long time and you have to kind of update them and do more reporting. And so it ended up kind of holding for almost like, I think it was a year. Mm -hmm. And by the time that I, you know, would, it ran the kind of tenor of the piece had changed very much because she was in a pretty big slump and had, you know, fired a ton of caddies and had switched coaches and all these people were starting to criticize. And, and the very first thing that we kind of talked about when we sat down was, you know, her saying, yeah, I just, I think I'm probably going to retire by the time I'm 30. Like that's enough. I don't really want to play golf forever. And I was like, Oh, that's crazy to think about retiring at 30. Like how could, but she was very adamant about like, yeah, that's I'm, I'm good. Like I don't need to play past 30. I don't care what, you know, comes or doesn't come in my future with this. And, you know, I don't know if she's, that was probably four years ago, five years ago. I'm, I haven't certainly like followed up with that, but I have like talked to her when I took my daughter to the U S open, uh, we were walking along the ropes and walking her. And of course, Lydia, who's like one of the nicest people in all yep. of golf, like waves us in is like, Hey, do you want to come and walk with me? And my 11 year old is like, just completely, your mind is blown. And you know, Lydia Coe's, if you're familiar with this podcast, you probably heard me like getting all weepy on the podcast last year. When I was talking about Lydia Coe, like complimenting my daughter's freckles and saying like, Oh, you know, what, what's your favorite club to hit? Do you want to come stand on the tee with me on the seventh tee at Pebble beach with me? And you know, she's just was really like unbelievably nice and really kind. And I, it's really hard not to root for Lydia Coe when you have like an interaction with her like that. But like from, if I step back from it and like do my golf analyst thing, I sort of sit and think like, God, her swing was so pure and so unbelievable when she was 15, 16. Like if no one had ever touched it, you know, would she have had a better career, which, you know, it wasn't that long ago that I know this is a sensitive subject with the Ledbetters, but that, you know, David Ledbetter had her doing the A swing or whatever that he was kind of, you know, trying to have a whole different kind of swing philosophy that he was marketing and she was willing to go, go along with it. And then she was with Sean Foley and then left Sean Foley. So it's, it's hard to know because she was such a graceful, amazing wedge player, like an absolute maestro with her wedges. And that went away for a while. And, you know, I guess the hope is, is like that, that natural skill comes back. I think you hit on a, a really important point about who she is as a person because that's been used against her. Of Well, mm -hmm. she's not a killer. She's not a psychopath like you need to be. And I think that's just such an antiquated way to look at it and just an yep. unhealthy way to look at it. You don't have to be, I, I get there's the examples of Jordan, Tiger. I mean, you can go down the list, but there's a lot of other guys and a lot of athletes, excuse me, that have had well-rounded lives. So I always point to For Tim sure. Bunch, was a guy who arguably the best power forward of all time. And it was just yep. a normal dude. Um, and that example that you just gave with your daughter, that is not, that is not a lone story. I can't tell yep. you how many people have told me very similar things of, Oh, Hey, I met her six years ago and she remembered my name. And we literally just talked for three minutes at a driver. Yep. She's, she's mm -hmm. just a very, I think that stuff matters a heck of a lot more than how many, you know, if you're going to be a, a great player or not. And even today, she kind of said she was at peace, not making the hall of fame after she won. Yep. Um, 
and again, I, I, I am a firm believer that with what she's kind of done with her life, getting married, kind of understanding that there's a life outside of golf. I don't think this is going to necessarily hold her back in the next couple of years of what she could still do. I, I also don't think if she doesn't get there, we should term it a, as a disappointment. Yep. Um, it, she's, she's just someone that we, again, just don't give enough credit to. We should, if she does stick to that 30 aspiration, that's someone we should appreciate because I don't think we really realize how good she is. And if to her to yep. leave without getting that recognition, it just kind of stink. I always have very conflicted feelings about the LPGA's Hall of Fame criteria, right? Like, it's very black and white. It basically is, you know, there's no committee that has to weigh it, right? You just, you either are or you aren't, according to them. And I don't know, like, I guess, you know, you don't make it any kind of popularity contest if you do that. It's like your accomplishments, the, the criteria is laid out. It's, you know, a point for a win, a two points for a major. And I think you get a point for, you know, maybe it's one or two points for being player of the year or whatever. I, I just think... It's hard to when you see people who you feel like, oh, obviously, like Lydia Ko is a Hall of Famer, potentially getting left out. Like if she decided to retire tomorrow, is like Lydia Ko not a Hall of Famer? Like that seems like a pretty dumb argument. Uh, you know, there's a reason why in like in the NFL that like Gail Sayers is a Hall of Famer, right? He only, only played four years in the NFL. Yep. It's like, well, yeah, because it was so incredible and these circumstances happened. He blew out his knee back when there was no kind of like reconstructive knee surgery and I don't know. I just, it, it strikes me as a little bit off, I guess. Uh, but if you're someone who was like never the most popular player and you just went out and racked up wins, then it's a, it's probably a good thing for you. The Gail Sayers, as well as the Bill Walton are the two examples you always use yep. for the hall of fame standard, because yeah, I'm with you. Like I, I understand the the rationale behind it, but you're also trying to quantify something that is not quantifiable. That's the whole point of being a hall of fame is my, my standard <laughs> is this someone you're going to tell your kids about, right? And yep. that's not something that should just be a formulaic. And I, I by the way, everyone gets in the Hall of Fame anyway. If you, if you follow, <laughs> the Hall of Fame. so uh, I, I, under, I understand maybe trying to bring fairness to it, but I, it's just unnecessary to, to my view. Yep. You're right, like Lydia. If you ask anybody who follows golf, is Lydia called Hall of Famer? The answer is yes. If they say no, they're they haven't been following. Yep. As I said, you know, pretty good showing by Alexa Pano, uh, who was you know, as we said, a. a a phenom back in the day of when uh, Netflix was, you know, looking around for golf stories to tell and uh, put out a interesting documentary called The Short Game. But I always think it's kind of amazing that both she and Amari Avery were like the best seven and eight year old in the world back in what it was nineteen, you know, two thousand and fourteen or whatever that came out, and now they're legitimately like, you know, two of the best nineteen twenty year olds in the world, and uh, or at least you know in the top, you know, would you say top one hundred? which is a remarkable thing to like the funnel just keeps like going, you know, getting smaller and smaller and smaller as players get older. And I guess, you know, you use the Tom coin pyramid analogy. And for those two girls to become women and to still be really freaking good at golf. And for Alexa Pano to, you know, only lose an LPGA tournament to Lydia Ko by two shots. I mean, she birdied 14, 15 and 17 to kind of at least make Lydia have to work for it. I think Lydia had a five shot lead at one point in the, you know, going into the back nine, but that's pretty impressive. And I, I think, I don't know what Alexa Pano's ceiling is. I don't really care. I just, it makes me, it makes me smile to see her and her dad, who is like a true character in that documentary still out there. He's still caddying for her. He's still, you know, I kind of was thinking today, like, does he make her like ride in a different cart? If she hits like an out of bounds ball. Does he make her do like all these weird quirky, like, you know, uh, superstitious things that he was doing in the documentary, or is he kind of 
loosened that grip a little bit. I don't know. It'd be a great sort of thing to check in on and find out. That's, about. That was unfortunate. What was going through my head too. It was, I mean, she's 19 years old. This, this woman's mm-hmm. 19 and she seems so professional. And I mean that in a good way, but also like, uh, Oh man, like it seems like this person has been preparing for this for the last 10 years. Like let them, mm-hmm. let them, let her be a kid a little bit. Yeah. That, I mean, that's just my main worry. Like I, I was extremely, I mean, Lake Nona is not, I know they set it up with the, with the celebrities and amateurs. Like it can be God, but at Lake Nona is not an easy course by any means. So for, yeah, that type of performance against the LPGA's best, it was very impressive. But yeah, I just watched that thinking like, oh my gosh, please just let this person be, let, let them enjoy whatever's about to happen. Right. So, uh, again, maybe everything's good, but just watching from afar and especially what we saw in that Netflix series, that was kind of everything. That was the only thing I was thinking about today. Watching, yeah. watching her. The curse of uh, being a star when you're young, right, is that you get to basically be around your neck for the rest of your life in a lot of ways, whether it's good or bad. I'm sure there's opportunities that uh, you know, Pano and like Amari Avery have gotten, uh, you know, whether it's sponsorship stuff or whatever because of that. But, you know, I don't know. It's an interesting uh, trade off. You know, we it's funny because like I didn't it's not like Nick Dunlop was eight years old and we knew who he was. Like, you know, yep. there's a lot of people who are finding out about who he was probably tuning in today for the first time at at 20 and like Alexa Pano, like I've known who she was since she was seven, eight years old, which is crazy. Uh, in other news around the golf world, Joel, uh, Jay Monahan visits the kingdom uh, to sort of try to bang out some details uh, on a, uh, I guess a, this is a, still a framework agreement or an operating agreement moving forward. Uh, Sports Business Journal reported, uh, I think last week we heard that Jay and Yasser spoke on the phone for the first time since June 6th. Uh, Now they're actually meeting face-to-face. Turned out to be an interesting week for Jay to be meeting with Yasser uh, because of a story that The Athletic uh, came out with that uh, in Canadian court, uh, civil court, Yasser El-Ramayan is being accused of um, having carried out the instructions of Saudi Arabian Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman with malicious intent of harming, silencing, and ultimately destroying the family of the country's former intelligence chief, chief Dr. Saad Al-Jabari. Al-Jabiri. Uh, the claims were made in legal papers that were dispatched to Al-Ramayan uh, in various locations. I guess they, a process server had to go find Yasser. That'd be an interesting job, I must say. Uh, but essentially accused of, um, you know, attempted or kidnapping uh, of uh Mr. Al Jair's family. Uh, Joel, there's a lot to sort of say or a lot to think about this. I don't know where we want to go with this, but uh, I guess my first thing would just be like, this is always what I have sort of kind of, I guess, had frustration about or, or is that it's not even what Saudi Arabia has done in the past. It's what potentially they might do in the future. And how do you sit there and smile and shake hands and have them be directly involved in then when it is clear that like MBS is not really changing his behavior in any way. And so for all the whataboutism and all the kind of people who are really want to deflect in a lot of ways about, you know, well, America does bad things too, or whatever. What is it going to look like when the PGA tour has a tournament someday in Saudi Arabia, assuming this framework agreement goes, becomes a real agreement and we have like oh, 100 gay people executed uh, for protesting or something in Saudi Arabia. Or we have another journalist who gets kidnapped and dismembered because I don't really feel like golf is going to deter uh, the crown prince from doing what he wants. 
despite what Dustin Johnson has maybe said, or some people have said like, oh, well, you know, golf could be this force of good. They can really change the attitudes of the people over there. I know that is a lot of word salad to throw at you, but uh, where do we, what do we think about this news this week? No, I mean, to me, it's the reality check that's well past due, right? Because as bad as June 6th was, I think most of the moral outrage was actually muted a little bit, at least compared to the noise of just the surprise and shock of the deal. Uh, maybe even not muted. It was just more of, do we really need to relitigate a topic we spent the past 18 months discussing, not just the ethical concerns, but then, of course, the more nuanced arguments of operating in a global economy and the counter arguments, all that nonsense mm-hmm. that just many sports fans do not want to talk about when they deal about sports. I mean, that's that's why athletics as propaganda works, right? It, it just wears you down until you're numb and you don't want to talk about it anymore. So mm-hmm. I don't know this story. And, you know, it is just an allegation, but it is, it's the gut punch that underlines the new re- reality facing the tour. Because, I mean, from afar, it's very easy to just distill this down to, like, what are we doing here? Are we really, are we really doing business with somebody who's been accused of kidnapping? Mm-hmm. And the problem from the tour is, I'll, I'll probably write this tonight, is the story really crystallized that the tour has backed itself into like a no-win situation, right? Because if, yep. if you're the tour, you're about to partner directly with this guy and, and a regime involved with everything that place and those people are involved with. Maybe maybe not even involved with. That's who you're answering to now. That's yep. who you're going to That's These people are going to have a major say in how you run and where you're going and who you're about. And it's a partnership that to a not insignificant amount of fans really raises questions about your own judgment, integrity, morality. Mm-hmm. Now on the other end, the tour can't not do the deal. It, it live has shown they have blank checks. Yep. They have an endless runway to take off and they're willing to take the tour down just so they can get flight. Right. So these are also not people who lose. So this idea that <laughs> those backers are just going to go, ah, well, you know, $4 billion down the drain, you know, time to move on. Like everybody who I've talked to over the past almost three years now who's covered Saudi Arabia and covered this regime, mm-hmm. this will just make them more emboldened if a deal does not go through. They'll, they'll just yeah. keep throwing more money at it. This is not something that's going to go away if the deal falls flat. So and now as the tour, you have just normalized doing business with your enemy. You've turned off some of your most loyal backers, both players, yeah. sp- sponsors, because the because of the deal, the June sixth deal itself and the secrecy around it, and you've already publicly, if you're Monahan, you publicly say that your model is not sustainable, and now you can't play the moral card after June. So <laughs> I know, I know that's a lot of words as well, but that's kind of where I'm at. This is, I, I feel everyone got upset when you would yell the the moral entanglements, the sports watching stuff, but like not to downplay Kashogi or anything. It was that these things, a lot of things are ongoing in that kingdom that are problematic and a lot of things are still going to be done and what happens not from the past what happens on the next thing and here's the next thing and it's not just Mm -hmm. this it's going to be something else so it's such i mean and then you know what this is honestly it it's a lot of it has to do with the the greed from both the players it has a lot to do from the 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 hubris from the pga tour front a lot of blame goes around but like we're in this spot now and there's just unfortunately i do not see a, a good way out yeah no, I think that the, like this is just the reality of what sports are. And that's, you know, I've written a couple times about this kind of thing of like it's you can feel turned off by the whole greed of this stuff. And you can just tell yourself, like, I don't want to be involved in it. I want to support it. You know, I'll just watch the majors. And that's uh, that's your choice. Like there are great stories that are still going to come out of golf. You know, today's a great example. But I for me, what's hard is like where the moral line where the players have sort of 
decided to just basically ignore the moral line, right? Like if, yep. if anyone was going to like kidnap one of their own children, they wouldn't be like, oh yeah, well that's okay. Like I'll, I'll still, you know, do propaganda for you and take your $250 million. They'd be like, no, that's, that's abhorrent. Like there's no way, like there's no price that I would sort of, you know, accept for like my own children being kidnapped, but like somebody else's kids. Well, I don't know. Like, I don't know that person. Like I don't have anything to do with them. And for me, like, I just, I don't quite understand how they make those moral justifications. There's a lot of just like saying, well, you know, it's just, it, everybody does it. Everybody, the money's there. Somebody's going to take it. Might as well be me. I can do good with that money if I want to. I just don't know that I could stomach that, but you know what? I didn't, no one's offering me $500 million like John Rom. So, I, you know, I guess it's, maybe it's easy for me to say I wouldn't, but I, I just feel, it feels gross to me that the possibility of those kind of like, things of, of further abhorrent things like they when you heard those guys in those pressers you know in london say well everybody knows the judge the khashoggi situation was reprehensible was nobody supports that or whatever well kind of by the fact that it's continuing you are kind of supporting it going forward so you don't really have that card to play anymore like hey we think that they'll behave we think that they'll do good like you know if like charges like this kind of hold up and i think civil court is one of the only places where you can sort of you know, pursue something like this. It's not like there's like a head of DA that you can ask to sort of charge MBS with a crime in this situation. It's just, it's gotta be, it's gotta be super frustrating for a lot of people who have been directly affected by this stuff. And I've, I've talked to some of those, you know, people whose families that were tortured by, you know, this stuff. But anyway, anyway, it's, it's, it's such a frustrating thing to have to talk about this, like all the time on a golf podcast, but you know, it is, I feel like it is important and it is like, at least you're understanding and aware of what's out there. Like if you want to put your head in the sand and just enjoy the golf, that's, you have that right. But I feel like at least ought to have the information that's out there. Uh, Bernard Longer announced uh, this week that it'll be his last masters. Uh, so like, I think we both all really, truly enjoyed when Bernard, uh, one of the most memorable moments in the last few years, not to pick on Bryson, but when Bryson said that, uh, you know, Augusta was a par 69 for him. And that year, uh, it came out and, and was beat by a shot by Bernard Longer, who was essentially having to hit three wood into every one of those greens, uh, every one of the par fours. Nobody like as an older golfer, I think has been, and by older, I mean like, you know, 55 plus has probably been as good as Bernard Longer has been. Uh, you know, it's just, you know, racked up. I think he's uh, tied with Hillary one of the most wins in the champions tour history is one of, just a ton of majors has been competitive in you know, in some respects, like at the masters, at least like made the cut a ton, ton of times. It's super fun to watch burn Langer. I, I guarantee you on Thursday, I'm going to want to go out and see him play, you know, a nine holes just to kind of get one more experience of that. What do, what do we think as Bernard kind of hanging up two time master winner uh, this year? It'll be his last go round. Well, sorry to correct you. It was actually par 67. Bryson. Oh, excuse me, par 67. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, <laughs> I've never been been more delighted to be corrected in the midst of, of, uh, of the show, an error like that. It, uh, it, it's, you know, it, at least for, for me, Longer was always like an avatar of, as a regular golfer, this idea chasing that you can still – be good or, or still better yourself as you age that you don't have to just accept your game go, going to hell. Um, and it was really, you just saw this like very youthful guy. And I remember, so last, uh, yeah, it was last year I was at, uh, Anwa 
And between Anwa and Monday, the practice round, they had like the drive, trip, and putt, right? And what's cool though is that the course is mostly close, and you'll have at the end of the competition, you'll have a lot of players start kind of coming out to the range as the, these games are still going on. And Longer was out on the range for like four hours, just going at it, preparing himself. And I kind of caught him briefly on his way because uh, that day we're not the riders are not allowed on the course, but I just kind of briefly caught him. He was just like, yeah, you know, like missed the cut the last two years, got to fix it. And it was so awesome to see at that. I guess he was 65 at that point. That was, this wasn't just like a line he was saying. Like I could tell he, to his core, really wanted to make the cut and, and compete. And to me that like, it just, again, not, not to get Hawks essential, but for all the past couple of years, it does make you wonder how much these guys truly love the game. If it's just a business for them. Like I, I can say with longer, it really was his passion over his profession. And that was just really admirable. And that way he was willing to do everything, everything to possibly just milk everything out of his game for possible. It was really admirable. And I think he's a guy, especially his peers will say, just a, a gentleman carried himself extremely well. Um, I, I always thought the USGA should have just used longer's driving distance stats to make their point about rollback. <laughs> like he was taking the ball farther at 62 than he was at 22. But, uh, no, he, uh, it's just, it's really cool to see. And, um, yeah, I, I know he's probably a guy who doesn't, you know, he's never a, a superstar, uh, when he was in his prime, I, certainly the, his champions career is he almost gained like a second, second career on, on that. But uh, yeah, hopefully I'm with you. I, I'm really looking forward to seeing him on, on Thursday and Friday. And I honestly, I would not be surprised if he makes it to Saturday just because that's the type of, that's the type of fire that guy's got. Totally. The last major winner to win with a persimmon driver. Uh, which is always kind of a neat, uh, an unbelievable stat. I think it was 92 uh, was when it was last Masters. Uh, we had a persimmon driver. Uh, all right, so speaking of Masters winners, uh, our oldest living Masters champion, Jackie Burke Jr., died uh, this week. Um, Jackie Burke Jr. won 16 times on the PGA Tour, including two majors in 1956, uh, the Masters and the PGA Championship. He was also the Ryder Cup captain in 1957. Uh I, you know, I, I got to be honest, I wasn't super like familiar. It wasn't like, you know, someone who, you know, had read a ton about Jackie Burke Jr., but it was fun to kind of see some of the tributes, some of the, some of the way the players uh, spoke reverently about him and what a, not only what a good player he was, but what a good teacher he was. And um, players would go to sort of see him, uh, you know, for various, you know, points and, and ask him for swing advice. I know he was a big mentor to Hal Sutton and um, some of the other you know, players of that generation. He he did have one of the best sports quotes, I think, of all time. Uh, he said, uh, Jimmy Demerit and I had the best sports psychologist in the world. His name was Jack Daniels, and he was waiting for us after every round, uh, which I thought was just funny than like in the era of like going to see your psychologist. Like I'm a big believer in like all that, and I love, you know, when players are willing to talk about that. And, you know, Wyndham Clark talked about how important that was for him this year. And, but it was funny to see that, that you know, greatest generation – just who had been, literally been to war was like you know Jim, Jackie Burke Jr. like went off and was in the Navy and it was like yeah I'm gonna go back and play golf and it was like oh professional golf like that's just not that important like let's have a drink and like let's laugh after the round so. he he was like that badass with the heart of gold grandpa we all wish we had yes. uh my favorite two quotes from him and one I saw from I think he might have said this a couple of times but D- Doug Ferguson from the AP <laughs> recycled over the weekend was you know, why do they have 34 rules in golf? Like there's only 10 commandments. And like, that was funny. <laughs> then I thought like, actually that's, that's, that's kind of deep. Like that's, that is, man, why, why do we have that many rules? And I think another was when some 
uh, Houston Chronicle reporter asked him about Champions Club, which he helped found of, hey, is it is it rare you have, I think it was either five PGA Championship winners or, or five major winners? And I think the reply was, we've had three guys who've walked on the moon on our club. That's a dumb question. I <laughs> just did not suffer fools. And uh, yeah, it's they don't make him like him anymore. But man, I mean, a couple of days, I think 10 days out from 101, just what a... Yeah. What a what a life well lived. So yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it was fun to see some of the tributes. I you know that's that is what part of what makes sports like kind of cool, right? Is like just the connection to what's happened in the past, and like you you see the way that you know players who've played now like revere people who've come before them and walked. That's that's kind of why the Masters is meaningful, right? Is because you can connect the history of of what it was, and you can see like oh yeah, this is the where Jack you know Jack Berg Jr you know, hit this shot that won this, you know, tournament, whatever. It's a, it's a cool thing. Um, speaking of the masters again, Angel Cabrera, I see is working on getting a visa so that he can come back to the United States. The Masters said, uh, apparently through channels that he will probably be allowed to play if he can get back into the United States. Uh, what do we think about this? Joel? Yeah. I mean, it's, on one hand, he was convicted of doing terrible things to women. Um, mm-hmm. I also get the argument that he served his time. Uh, I, w- I was a little, I wouldn't say surprised, um, but, you know, the, I think legally that was the response Ridley had to give um, on yeah. the question. I would not be surprised if through back channels, if this visa does come to fruition, that maybe word is passed along that, hey, it might be best if you set this one out on hell. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that's that's kind of really <laughs> like on that one. Yeah. Hard to know. Like, I mean, it probably becomes a bigger deal, right? If the master says like, hey, you're not going to come, then, you know, is there, is he trying to sue the masters? Some sort of, you know, it's just maybe like let it go a few years. And then eventually like, has he, you know, is he shown that he's not that person who spent, you know, a couple of years in prison that he did his awful things? Is there some sort of attempt to reform himself or repent? I don't know. Those are probably more important questions for Augustus membership than you or I. So, yeah. yeah, just a kind of no matter. Now I saw the tiger filed a, a trademark with the tailor made for the Sunday red clothing. Looks like a like a skeleton of a tiger almost. Um, I got to be honest, I don't really care about this, Joel. I mean, I I'm, I'm with you. I was surprised by the amount of tributes that came out after. Yeah. It was like it was just. A, I don't know, man. I'm. I feel like I'm still a sports fan. I've been you know sports writer for almost 15 years now, but ultimately I'm still a sports fan. Uh, I, I'm with you. I just don't care. It's. I hope. I hope people like it. I hope it does well. I, I could not care at all, though. Yeah. Uh, speaking of sports fans, uh, you and I, I think, probably both got into journalism and got into uh, wanting to write in a lot of ways because of Sports Illustrated. Uh, some, I would say, pretty depressing news about the future of Sports Illustrated came out this week. Uh, it's sort of unclear whether there's a lot of people basically saying RIP Sports Illustrated looks like it's dead. Uh, the the brand that owns the Sports Illustrated brand basically said that because the media company that's sort of running it couldn't meet its you know debt payments or whatever that they were essentially firing the entire staff was leaked. Uh, but then it turned out maybe that wasn't the case. A lot of the people there still have 90 days. Uh, I, you know, I'm a little bit like. Uh, the nostalgia of Sports Illustrated is super meaningful to me, and I want to talk to you about that for a second. But I do really want to emphasize, like, I don't think it was, like, super helpful to all the, like, current staffers of Sports Illustrated, like, literally people who that we sit alongside in press box with every year. 
to see like people being like, oh man, like why couldn't sports Illustrated be like it was in like 1986? This Frank DeFord story like meant so much to me. And like the the curious case of Sid Finch, what a cool story. That was 40 fucking years ago. Like what this like waxing nostalgic over that kind of stuff, I do not think is like super helpful and does not exactly like have any relevance to like what Sports Illustrated is today. Uh, and so I just I feel deeply for the people. You know, obviously, we cover golf, who we know closely, but like the people who've who've been at Sports Illustrated for a long time. One of my really dear friends is a senior writer there. It just it sucks in a lot of ways because this is such an iconic, important brand. I know that there are challenges in the in media, and there are, like the delivery model of magazines is is really troubled. But there had to be better ways to run this company in a way that could have you know not only like paid tribute to its legacy, but move forward as a media brand and it just it really bummed me out to think about like a world where sports illustrated doesn't exist my wife was like asking me like what's wrong on friday and i was like can you imagine she's works in higher education i was like can you imagine if like harvard just said like we're closing like that's what it is to me like it just it that's it's unthinkable that like the pinnacle of my profession would just be like yep yeah, we're we're maybe done and that's i just don't know what to how to wrap my brain around it I felt the exact same way. Um, and to, to get to your your first point, if you do read Spilts, I, I know people met well, I think, with these, oh, the Frank DeFore, talking about the, the pieces they read up. I, I get that. It's also overlooking that this site still did a really good job, even till now. Uh, Michael Rosenberg, you know, kind of parachutes in on golf stuff. I think he's one of the best sports players out there. On the golf side, Alex Maselli, Bob Hare, Gabby Herzig, these are all people who do really good work. So if you're, if you're hearing this, uh, please shout one of those people out on, on Twitter. Let them know that you appreciate the work. They're all really good people and really good writers. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, I mean, to me growing up, it, gosh, there, it was just, I mean, Shipnuck and Bamberg, obviously they're still around, but I mean, Rick Riley, uh, John Garrity was a guy to me who never got the credit he deserved. He was just so solid every week. Um, I mean, it's funny. Steve Russian didn't talk about golf much, but when you do, I mean, Steve is a guy, I don't think I've ever read a piece from Steve that wasn't beautiful. Um, as someone now in the profession, it's like actually infuriating going back because he's just on a level that none of us can ever get to. Um, but yeah, you, you would do this stuff. I mean, we mentioned, right. It's funny. Riley. I, I think a lot of people under 40 don't realize how good Rick Riley was. Uh, his, his gamer from the 86 masters was, it's something I go back to. I go back and read before majors because he does. It's a good lesson of starting small to work to something big. And it was, there was not a wasted word. And it, yeah, just every week. I mean, I mean yeah, it, it was, it, you know, what I loved about their coverage too is I always, I always got a story that I was never, that I never got watching TV. And if there, if there was a connective tissue through all the different writers in the work, it was feeling like, these writers had a true love for what they were doing, which is something, you know, we know being in the industry, that's not always what you get sometimes from sports writers the long you get in it. So, and also, heck, I, as a guy who was in golf before or was playing golf before Tiger, like golf wasn't always cool. And when there was golf in Sports Illustrated, it kind of, it made it felt like the sport mattered. And more importantly, it felt like these guys were speaking a language that maybe a lot of people around me at least didn't really speak. So yeah, I, at this point, you, I, I, I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be as sensitive to, I mean, the current me, I mean, obviously a lot of stuff happened with the LA times last week with the Baltimore sun. This is not, this is not alone, but just what sports illustrated meant 
to me personally and what it meant to a lot of people. It, this one was, this was a tough swallow. Yeah. I hope that they can figure out a way to sort of make it work going forward in some capacity. Like, you know, my bedroom wall, like my wallpaper in my bedroom was Sports Illustrated covers. I mean, just, I would cut off covers and I had, you know, 400 of them covering the walls or like various pictures. I and mean, that was just, I, I grew up, you know, with that in my bloodstream really. And, you know, Rick Riley's not only like writing about Jack Nicholas, but like his story about Ian Baker Finch, which Sally and I have talked about a ton, you know, about it, it made me realize how like compelling it was to write about someone who was sort of a loser, right? Someone who had struggled, someone who is heartbroken. And you're not just having to write about the heroes and the people who are on highs. Like the most interesting stories are often about the people for whom it didn't work out and greatness wasn't necessarily assured. And that's a, a lesson I've tried. And I think you're 100% right about the most memorable thing about the stuff is that you could watch so much golf on TV and you could even golf TV now. You could, I try to keep this in mind whenever I go to a major. Your job as a writer is to show people something they cannot get on TV. And so it means like, remember Dan Wetzel saying to me, when somebody wins the Masters, you follow them for as far as you friggin' can. You follow them to the parking lot. You you know, and so one of my favorite stories I ever wrote was like waiting for Rory after he kind of, you know, kicked away a chance to win the Masters and Patrick Reed won, waiting for him in the player's parking lot to try to see what that walk would be like to his car. And it was such a, like a crushing sort of thing that his agent went and got the car and brought it up because he didn't want Rory to have to like get on a golf cart and go down to the non-major winner, the non-champions parking lot. And that was like the end of my story. And I was like, that's the kind of thing that Sports Illustrated taught me. It's like those details of after the cameras are gone are so much more interesting than what you see necessarily. Like, you know, and it just, I don't know. I, I hope media is in a, in a strange spot in this country. And I really, I really hope they can figure, we can figure something out because it, even if you are, feel like your politics aren't being properly represented in certain media things like the flow of information and like the idea of institutions needing some sort of check on them that's not beholden to them that's not a business part with them partner with them is so important and that we've got to find a way to figure that out amen brother and and i would also just say like if you because it's something i'm in i'm late 30s now right so like i've i've been through a lot of like before i came to golf digest i was at fox sports and i got lucky in that i left right before i saw a bunch of layoffs and a lot of creative people left same thing when i was at the Cincinnati inquirer like months before months after i left excuse me just a row of people lost i mean again for us i think it's without overstating the obvious like it's our job but man we love our job so it's like equally painful when these things happen um so if you if you can support any anyone that has either a pay site or just whatever you can do to help the business, it really means a lot. And even if it's just a note to someone you follow and like reading their stuff, just just a simple note can can go away. So um, I know as bad as the media landscape can be right now, there's still a lot of talented people, especially in our game. I think we're kind of blessed right now with a lot of different voices, I'm not really covering the same type of things, but it's, it's a really, really interesting crowd we have right now. So uh, if, obviously if you're listening to this, you're a golf fan, whoever your favorite person is, personality writer, let them know because you never know what that can do for their day. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, it's funny, Joel, I was thinking about this, like you said a note from somebody, like I got a, a really great note from a woman named Sally Tilden a while ago. I hope she said she listens to the podcast very regularly. And I wanted to shout her out. 
She said that she's 86 years old. She's never played a round of golf ever, but she really loves the, the No Laying Up product. She's been an avid sports fan since following the Indy 500 and the Cleveland Indians as a youngster. She said, I don't always get your inside jokes, but it, every podcast brings me an understanding of the great sport. Thank you for that. Uh, one thing I find is if I keep up the latest sports, I'm also keeping up with my children and their children. It keeps me relevant and keeps me it. Uh, and I just like little notes like that can, obs- can just make you feel like you are, you know, you're going to make it to the next month, right? You're going to make it to the next year of being a journalist. It's like you've, you've done something that made somebody smile and resonated with them. So I wanted to give a shout out to Sally. Thank you so much for that. No, that was awesome. I hope you're connecting with your grandchildren and, uh, and you got to enjoy the Nick Dunlap victory. Uh, if, if you've made it this far into the podcast, uh, I wanted to end with something that I thought would be a little bit of fun. Joel and I were kicking around the idea. There's so much talk about, uh, you know, the business of the PGA tour and the business of the PIF. Uh, I, we thought it would be fun to, uh, decide if you were going to start a small business with a PGA tour or a professional golfer, it doesn't have to be a PGA tour player. It could be an LPGA tour player, anyone, uh, what golfers would you choose? Joel, this was, uh, your idea, uh, thought up over a few beers and it made me laugh immediately when I saw it. Uh, I, I came up with some of my own, but I want to hear yours first. Uh, because I think this is a fabulous thought exercise. Yeah. Just the short Genesis is, uh, last night watching football at a bar. There was, it's, it's a newer place and there's clearly a, a disconnect between the staff, uh, and the owner. And it was great. Cause like you expect that kind of frenetic, uh, <laughs> just that, that, that energy of, of everywhere. No one quite knows what's going on. Um, but it just kind of led the idea of who would I want to start a business with as a tour player. Uh, so our right, first guy, and this is, I'm going from four to one. So this is like more of my okay. honorable mention. Uh, yep. Medrick McNeely, uh, a okay. very, very smart guy. Well, I honestly, the smartest guy on tour to me, a, a very genuine guy, but yep. the smartest guy. And I, I think if you're looking at the current crop of players who would one day maybe be a good commissioner, yeah, you'd pick, and I'm not even sure who would be at second. Uh, I do want to make clear, I'm not banking on any money from his dad. Uh, they've made it very clear he wants to be his yeah, own. Yeah. Uh, I, however, I think we can also say like he probably has some, you know, relationships. Yeah, with some well-off folks. So I think seed money or financial backing could come pretty easily. So McNeely, uh, he's number four for me. Okay. Was it, were we talking like a financial business or did you have any kind of thoughts in particular about what kind of uh, business it so might be? Or? At the, at the, so for my exercise, I did actually bar, but you know, for yours, we okay. can go ahead and just do any type of. Oh, it's of, just a bar. Okay. I, 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 uh, I that's an excellent qualifier. I did have a bar in one of mine. So, uh, okay. Okay, so I uh, my number four pick was Matt Fitzpatrick uh, because I feel like you know we, we would really moneyball that shit. Like he would be <laughs> writing down like all the you know the stats of where could we get like better and let's let's if we say it's a bar like where are our suppliers going to come from? What was a crowd like this time? Like what, how many people? How did this interact? This waitress interact with this person? Servers and this? I feel like he's exactly the kind of guy who you'd want uh, to sort of be a detail oriented sort of grinder. Uh, and I'd just be like the idiot out front who was wiping things down while every day, like Matt was like, you know, Kev, we got to get, you know, a cheaper peanuts. I got these really great, you know, donut holes from uh, this new supplier down the road. So I, I love the pick. My only worry is he's such a hard worker that like he might shame you if like you're not there it's at true. 6 a.m. and are, are you leave before 2 a.m. <laughs> but if from a partner, I, I agree the, the, that he's, he's he's someone I think would be he's in the circle. Um, he might get carded at the door too often too because he still looks like he's you know 19 years old. So, uh, well, so in that same wavelength, I have Tom Hoagie as number oh, three. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, 
Very I also say very fiscally responsible. A guy who famously rides in coach despite making millions of dollars to save. So I don't have to worry about uh, any weird things going on with the accounting books. Uh, yep. Very good with people. I've what I've noticed yep. with Tom over the couple of years, he's a guy who can is very good at listening, and then with like two sentences can like get to what everybody has been arguing for for the last ninety minutes. Yeah. Um, which I think is very good if you're a business owner. Uh, selfishly too, I just want it for the sandwich portion of the menu, bar menu. Like, yeah. do we call it Tom's Hoagies? Do we call it like Hoagie <laughs> Grinders? I spent way too much time on this last night uh, and realized Tom's Hoagies is a winner. Yeah. So, uh, or does he not? Is he just over the sandwich buns? But uh, yeah, Hoagies and Hoagies and Heroes or something? Or I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, Hoagie Hoagies number three for me. Okay. Uh, my number three was Shane Lowry. Uh, he might be on your list if we're talking pubs, but I, I feel like I could do all the books and ordering and he just would need to be kind of like a bartender slash like personality slash bouncer, which he showed at the Ryder cup, like that he could throw people out the front door. Uh, if need be, I think if there's I, really, if there's any PJ tour player who would be a great fit for just a good, like a genuine Irish pub, I would think that Shane Lowry would be number one. I'm legitimately like at this point, like if you told me he was just done with golf and just wants to open a pub, like I'm surprised that hasn't happened already. <laughs> he just he just looks like a guy who should be in a pub at all times. Um, I mean, honestly, like he should buy a pub like in, you know, St. Andrews and just basically like run it. You know, I mean, I guess he's Irish as opposed to Scottish, but, you know, at least show up for like the, you know, the open championship every five years. That'd be everybody would want to go to, to old Lowry's pub. I feel like you just gave away a business idea for free there. I did. <laughs> James, if you're reaching out, I need a finder's fee. Uh, on that, so. uh, All right, okay, who you got? So two for me. Is, now, have you watched uh, Parks and Recreation, Kev? Yes, I have. Yes, I have. Uh, so I'm picking Mark Hubbard for my number okay. two because I feel like this will be the closest to replicating Entertainment 360 or Entertainment 720. 720, yeah. Yeah, with uh, Aziz and uh, John Raphael where okay. uh, Mark – for the. I, <laughs> Here's my personal take. Mark is Joel Damon without Joel Damon's publicity. Uh, okay. just the funniest guy to me, one of the funniest guys out there. Uh -huh. uh, someone who you would have the like, who would be the guy you want to have a beer with? Um, yeah. Don't know. I also feel like though we would burn the place to the ground within months, but we'd have like a really good time doing it. Um, yeah. So if as long as we're just in it for the good time, not the long time, Mark Hubbard's my pick. That's great. Also, like. Has his brother who hosts the the podcast about Taylor Swift uh, with Nora Pernicotti. Like he, Mark, Mark uh, Nate, his brother, former like CEO of, uh, I believe, Ticketmaster. So like you got some connections there. You can really make some inroads in a lot of different entertainment elements of things. I think that's an excellent pick. Uh, uh, all right. I My number two pick, my little bit of a curveball here, uh, James Hahn. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, he has experience uh, selling shoes, the grind. Feel like he knows what it's like to be hungry all right uh you know when you talk to like business people like billionaires they always say and i've heard billionaires talk give this advice to athletes it's basically like don't give your friends money for their businesses wait to start a business until you are retired because your friends when like the wolf is at the door and that they're they will not work as hard because it's not their money they will let that investment go down and they will not they will just they won't care as much as you'll care and I think like I feel like James Hahn would be my guy. He, they won't, he needs to fight hard. He knows what it's like to have to have been poor to scrape through it. You know, he might be a little bit he may not be afraid to like put himself out there and like accuse the competition of unfair business practices or uh, you know, go after the regulatory committees who weren't giving us licensing when we needed them, whatever. 
But I think I think we can make it work. You know, I know James not a big fan of the NLU podcast, but throwing you bone here, I think you'd be a good business partner. I'd feel like you have a whole line of like Moscow mules too, right? Just yes. that that would be his thing. Uh, <laughs> I could see him being upset though too. If like, what, where were you at dinner last night? What, who did you go to dinner with? It's this I don't know. Good points. I, yeah, I'm, I'm a little worried about that one. I like where your head's at, but I don't know. Uh, okay, I don't, did, I did try to throw a curveball in there. I wasn't trying yeah. to, you know. Pick the obvious. All right, what do you got for well, this, the finish? This, this one might seem obvious, but I feel like it needs a little bit more explanation, especially with the bar okay. setting. Uh, okay. Number one for me is Harry Higgs. I, I yep. get it. It's exactly the type of person you would want behind a bar. Uh, very lovable, relatable. I don't think he has given enough credit for how introspective and astute he is. Yep. Um, and he's really he's really savvy, and I think he has he's a really good business sense. I remember. I don't know how this even happened. I was out at Bandon Dunes and we, I played with him and he, this was right before everything kind of broke. Um, it was in 2021, but we kind of knew what was coming down the line a little bit with the, with the Saudi back circuit. And he really mm-hmm. kind of had a, a clear vision of how things were going to go. He had a clear vision of how like money works in the game. Um, but just his emo- emotional intelligence is off the chart, which I think is what you really need in a business like this. So um for reasons obvious and maybe not well known uh harry higgs is my number one pick he so we were doing a uh podcast or like it was a live show from the masters this year and harry was our guest on it so i was like reporting live from the masters and i joined the thing and i i just i was you know harry and i i the player that i get most compared to like by people on twitter is harry higgs because we're sort of similar build or whatever but obviously like i'm older i have you know a graying beard whatever and so when I, I hopped on the podcast, I was like, hey, guys, it's Harry Higgs calling from the future. And I, there was this brief moment where I was like, oh, fuck, like if, if he feels like upset about this or like offended by this, like I'm going to feel like such an idiot. I you know this guy's been nice enough to hop on our live show during the Masters, which he's not competing in. And it got such a like a big laugh from Harry. And I was like, oh, God, that, I felt su- such a sense of relief of like. Oh, he did. He is okay, like okay with like joking about himself because I I wouldn't really know him, but I was just like, oh, I'm gonna go for this joke and hopefully he'll like it, and and he did. So I love that. Uh, similar kind of vibe here on my final pick, Joel. Uh, I picked Keith Mitchell and Sunjay M. A little bit of a cheat because oh. you know we get it as a team, but a really you know especially if we're in a bar setting, like very personable. Sunjay's gonna work his ass off. He's never gonna take a day off. He's gonna be in that bar like every single night probably till close uh, and get back out there. And Keith is just going to be like my front man. Who's just going to be like, your charming, you know, he's going to, he might institute a dress code. He might, you know, need to talk to some investors about some capital, you know, he's, he's going to get us like on the map in terms of the scene. So uh... <laughs> Keith, Keith was into my honor. I had actually him and, and Mark as a, which one do I want to roll here with? And I felt like Mark doesn't get, get enough love as, as he should, but uh, I, I totally, I totally uh, second, uh, that that pick and Sung Jay was just great. I, I overlooked the work ethic. That's on me. It's, he's probably already uh, started the bar before we even know it right now. Uh, if we aren't sticking to bars here, I do have one honorable mention. Uh, I feel like I could sell like reverse mortgages with Phil Mickelson, uh, <laughs> or maybe like one of those cryogenics businesses where they like freeze your head and hope that someday they'll be able to reattach it to your body, kind of like Ted Williams and his son. <laughs> I feel like Phil would be able to talk anybody into. The idea that like your head lives on in a freezer, uh, but your body will come back and you you will still have all that knowledge of you know what it was like when you were alive. Uh, if anybody could sort of make that happen, it'd be Phil. It's, <laughs> I have nothing else to add because we we have to just go on a high note. <laughs> well, 
Thank you for listening. We, there is a, we're going to have a, a, me reading a little narrative column at the end of this. Uh, if you're, if you've made it this far in the podcast, but, uh, I appreciate you. Thanks again for tuning in this week while the, the boys are down on tour sauce and especially thanks to Joel. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk golf with you. Uh, when we get to do it at majors or tournaments, I'm always feel away coming away. I wish I got to do it more. So thank you for, for making it part of my professional week this week. Jordan. Yeah, really appreciate the invite and looking forward to seeing you again in person, bud. All right. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate you. And uh, yeah, we'll have a little little calm for me to follow us up and then uh, catch us uh, next week with the, the farmers. We'll be back for the farmers. It rained recently in Baltimore, and it was the kind of rain that lingers like a bloated literary novel, one that isn't subtle or particularly well-reviewed. For days, it was heavy and intense. Then it would lighten up for a few hours, only return to its previous parade of miseries. When it rains for days on end, that's when I tend to miss golf the most. When it snows, I retreat into a state of resignation and acceptance, because I know I won't be hitting putts anytime soon. But when it rains, I often look out the window and tell lies to my golfing soul. If it just lets up a little, I tell myself. I could throw on my rain gear and pretend like I'm in Scotland. I could throw some darts at soft greens. I could have the course to myself. This time, however, I couldn't even fake it. There were several small rivers forming in my driveway and a fetid swamp forming in my backyard. By nightfall, my wife had informed me that our basement was leaking and the mountains of boxes on the floor that I had spent months promising I would deal with were about to meet their predictable and perhaps literary end. We spent a full Saturday sorting through the mess building shelves and swapping out soggy cardboard boxes for military-grade plastic bins. As the day went on, I realized that in addition to old newspaper and magazine clips, the time had come to deal with another haunting element of my past. The overflowing, embarrassing box of golf training aids taunting me from the corner. If you're a golfer and you've spent any time on Instagram the last few years, there is a 100% chance the algorithm has tried to get you to buy a training aid of some kind. If you've never purchased one, you're made of smarter stuff than I am, and I recommend that you don't give in to the temptation to do so. Think of them like an addictive drug. It might be fun for a while, but it will fade, and you'll feel compelled to chase that high, and you might end up doing more damage than good. The people who make them, the instructors who swear by them, know this even if many of them swear they have good intentions. That's why they keep churning out new training aids every year. A 10 handicap and his money are soon parted. Second and third homes have been paid for by suckers like me, the kind of foolish golfers who can't resist believing that someone has invented a magic wand, typically made out of plastic, fiberglass, and Velcro, that will turn them into Adam Scott with a little solitary practice. In my basement, I have training aids that are supposed to help me keep my left arm straight, ones that promise to help me bow my wrist, and others that have something to do with radial or ulnar deviation. I can never keep them straight. There is a belt with fabric boxes attached. It sounds insane just saying it. Meant to help me rotate, and a boot that looks like a medieval torture device vowing to help me load weight into my right side. There is another belt, yes, a second golf training belt, with rubber tubing attached that I'm not sure I could even bring through TSA without ending up on a watch list. There are tempo trainers and putting mirrors and inflatable beach balls attached to a lanyard that you wear around your neck like you've won the Olympics of shame. Remember that scene in 10 Cup when Kevin Costner has the shanks and Rene Russo catches him in his trailer, shamefully draped in the same training aids he took from her during their very first lesson? That's me.
Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. I don't know when that sickness overtook me, but I do know I'm not alone. My colleague, Cody McBride, suffers from a similar affliction, and he's a far better golfer than I am. We are drawn to snake oil, and on the gram, there is always a charming Harold Hill figure in a half sip, promising to unlock something in us. If we click twice and use Apple Pay, a package will be on its way, probably from Taiwan, almost instantly. I recently had a marketing person slide into my DMs and offer me a free training aid, the kind you stand on and use to help you shift your pressure to your left side during transition, and I had to sheepishly admit that I couldn't accept it. It wasn't because I had ethical qualms about getting one gratis. It was that I'd already purchased one months prior. On our goals podcast this year, DJ Pajowski said something that made a light bulb go off in my brain, and I knew he wasn't just speaking for himself. He was speaking to thousands of idiots like me. Hey, what if I just stopped trying to web MD my own golf swing every year and actually sought out professional help? I never imagined I would be the kind of adult male who was stubborn enough to believe I could fix things I did not understand. I never liked the cliche about men refusing to stop and ask for directions, but I understand it now. I realize that I buy golf training aids for the same reason I occasionally walk into the hardware store and politely decline when someone who works there asks if I have any questions. I'm here to buy grommets, I want to tell them, and even though I don't know what those are or where you might stock them, it will somehow be more satisfying to me if I can locate them myself before I contemplate purchasing at least three of them, all of them different sizes. There is something alluring about trying to be your own savior, but I never understood how the companies who make training aids preyed on the insecurities of people like me until I added up the wreckage of the last five years. There had to be more than a thousand dollars of plastic and Velcro and misery buried in my basement. Had I really purchased all this crap because I felt uncomfortable getting a series of golf lessons? That I didn't want to ask an expert for help because I was embarrassed that they would judge me as they tried, likely in vain, to help me? If I'm being honest with myself, the answer is yes. It turns out, rather than doing one hour of golf therapy, men will literally go to the driving range with an inflatable beach ball dangling from their neck and stand on a bright orange seesaw. I want to believe that all changes this year. I may never have a pretty golf swing, but this is the year I stop looking for those answers on YouTube and Instagram. I've got to find an instructor, so pray for both of us. It's time to unload all these fantasy fixes on someone else, likely for pennies on the dollar. If you're in the market for a G-Box or a G-Snap or a Pro Sender or a Pressure Plate or a Tourist Striker or an Orange Whip or an Impact Strap or a Smart Ball or a Pivot Pro, you might be in luck. But caveat emptor. I might keep one training aid, however. I have a set of yellow pool noodles attached to a tripod that was supposed to help establish a path that would shallow out my swing. I think it's called the Chili Whacker, but I've long since lost the box. It cost about $175 and it was totally worthless. But I feel like the pool noodles could still come in handy if my next basement flood turns biblical. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. 
How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect 